The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, apparently a hot, sticky all day ahead for most parts of the province today. For those of you who have a mini-split, the mini-split is great in the wintertime for a quick burst of heat in the living area. You know, most of us spend the vast majority of our time in one part of the house or another. So the mini-split is great for that, but the prime feature for me is you put it on the dry setting to help cool the place off on these sticky old days. But here we go. All right. Now, you know <laughs> you know what's got me excited. My favorite team in the NHL has always been the Montreal Canadiens. And, of course, I've been following along with the career of all the local fellows who have made it to the NHL, including Alex Nahook. Newhook traded by Colorado to Montreal yesterday. There's still no deal in place that he's a restricted free agent with no arbitration available, so he's yet to sign a contract with Montreal, but they have his rights. And what they gave up to get him really looks like the Canadians are quite optimistic about what Newhook can provide on the ice. they got a good young group. They were desperate last year. We all know that to be true. But Montreal gave up a first-round pick, the 31st overall, a second-round pick, along with a defenseman who I believe was the 70th overall pick a number of years ago named Gianni Fairbrother. Newark was 16th overall back in 2019. Bit of an off year last year. Didn't get to play a whole lot. But his skill, upside, and hockey IQ and determination is there for all to see. So here he comes to Montreal. I couldn't be happier, to be honest. Haven't had a chance to speak with Alex, but I know his Uncle Steve is a massive Montreal fan, and he's losing it, as says uh, Alex's father. So he's going to be the fifth uh, player from this province to play for Montreal. Joining Michael Ryder, Darren Langdon, Terry Ryan, Brad Brown. So good luck to Newhook. And of course, the other players in the shuffle here. Just wait till we find out this weekend what kind of contract extension New Jersey's going to sign with Dawson Mercer. Yeah, gotta believe it's going to be a massive number. You know, people have the rumbles about five years at five million per, which is probably the ballpark about what he's going to get, but go get him. And then, you know, we got Zach Dean knocking on the door. He was a first-round uh, pick of the Vegas Golden Knights. He's been traded to St. Louis. Maybe a chance for Zach to crack the lineup. And then another player gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, Clark Bishop. 27-year-old player. He's now re-signed with Calgary. Two-way deal, but with Calgary trying to restructure their club. Maybe Clark gets a real opportunity this year with the Flames. So anyway, great stuff. You want to talk about that? You know I do. I also read a good story in sports. You know, for people in broadcasting like myself, an opportunity to work in sports would be incredible, even though this job is great. So there's a fellow originally from St. John's named Aaron Murphy. He's been involved in broadcasting hockey games at the highest levels for quite a long time. He's called three Stanley Cups, ten World Championships, six Olympics. Now, he's been in Ireland for quite a while. He went over there on what he thought would be one-year stint. Ten years later, still there. He's got a new gig coming up, working for the Glasgow Clan in Scotland, a professional team they play in the Elite Ice Hockey League. He's their new senior advisor of hockey and broadcast operations, living the dream. Congratulations to you. And unlike, you know, he grew up here, so listen to Bob Cole. Oh, and as a matter of fact, Bob Cole just celebrated his 19th birthday. Happy birthday to you, Bob. So it's not like broadcasting to a North American, and specifically a Canadian market, where we, we know the game, we understand the game, so we just need the play-by-play call. For him, it's a combination of entertainment and education for the fans in the UK, where, of course, unlike soccer and rugby, they have an intimate understanding or hurling or whatever people are most interested in in the UK. But, as a matter of fact, 
in the UK, the largest indoor sport is hockey, which I wouldn't have known, but I read it in the news story this morning. Anyway, another quick sports note. And this was a contentious issue in the United States in the early 70s. On this date in 1971 that the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the draft evasion conviction of Muhammad Ali, an 8-0 decision coming from the court. All right, every now and then you see on social media someone will put out something where they're celebrating an achievement. You know, whether it be their child graduating from high school or doing great in university or some sporting achievements or what have you, or having a little win of some variety, and it just jumped right off the page to me the other day when I was just scrolling through the timeline and someone blurts out with a big collection of exclamation points, I found a spot in daycare, like they had just won the lottery. So that conversation kind of got a little bit sidetracked. We know there's moves afoot to improve the opportunities to find a spot for your child, especially for toddlers, which has become extremely difficult to find. So whether it be the pay grid for early childhood educators, and we do know, like, $10 a day and the affordabili affordability issue is great, but if you can't find a spot, it doesn't really matter how much it costs. So I just couldn't believe how celebratory the tone was of that tweet. I found a spot for my child in daycare. And you want to bring it on? We can bring it on this morning. All right. You know me, I like to talk about food. So yesterday, the Competition Bureau of Canada released a report regarding the grocery industry. And we'll get into some of the inflationary numbers for now in a second. But the, you know, the smear at the big grocery giants was quite clear is that the prices we couldn't blame it on ukraine or the russian invasion of ukraine we couldn't blame it on the crop issues in california when in fact everything plays some role in the price of groceries so inside their review it's pretty clear stuff just think about it there's two big international players here walmart and costco then you add in loblaws metro and sobeys which owned by uh, pardon me empire which owns sobeys so those five companies combined they add up to more than three-quarters of all the food sales in Canada. So the Competition Bureau says part of the problem here is the lack of competition. Makes sense. But it gets even a bit more complicated than that. Because even for the smaller retailers, by and large, they have to buy their product from the distribution networks owned by the big giants. The five really have consolidated the food industry. So they've put forward some four broad recommendations for governments to consider. And here's, we're just running them down a little bit. Establish a grocery innovation strategy aimed at supporting the creation of new types of grocery businesses, especially the ones that sell online. And many people turn to online opportunities to buy whatever, including groceries. Then talking about trying to encourage independent and international players to set up shop in Canada. Try to deal with harmonizing unit pricing requirements. Make it easier for consumers to comparison shop. And then this one is curious. They talk about limit property controls. Currently, there's restrictions on how real estate can be used by competing grocers, making it difficult or even impossible for the new stores to open. And even some of the land that would be ideal for a grocery store, you know, a large accessible space with a big parking lot, by and large, those big giants, they own them. So I get it. You know, we can talk about their profits and revenue, and they presented themselves in front of a parliamentary committee saying that it is not the greed that's driving the prices, it's all the other contributing factors. But competition always just makes sense, you know. Plus, the suppliers will pay the big, uh, big shots for space on a shelf. For the small independent retailers, not so much. So whether it be uh, the Colmes of the world or Powell's or what have you, they really have fight an uphill battle against these big behemoths. They own a lot of the space. They get paid for shelf space. They pretty much manage and own the distribution network and access to the product. So will any of that, if it all came to pass, reduce the prices in the grocery store? It certainly couldn't hurt.
you know, whether it be big foreign operations, like Marks and Spencer, for instance. If you're in the UK, everywhere you go, there's a Marks and Spencer selling groceries. Most people think it's a clothing retailer, but they're big in the grocery market. So dig into that particular Competition Bureau report, because I think it could be helpful. Now, the Retail Council of Canada, of course, speaking for the grocery chains, they say that, you know, this proves that there is no excessive greed or excessive profits on the backs of political rhetoric regarding inflation or the war in Ukraine or whatever the case may be. But I think there's got to be something, something's going to have to give because the price of groceries is just completely out of control. Now we'll talk about some of the inputs here and inflation. Yesterday we got some new numbers regarding inflation and now it's at 3.4% in May. That's down from 4.4% in April. Now, gasoline is a big contributing factor to the inflationary pressures that we're all feeling. Gasoline is down 18% year over year, same time frame. Now, if you back gasoline out of inflation, it's still in at around 4.4%. So the question will be, like I'm not feeling any reduction here in my cost of living pressures. I think basically because gas is still extraordinarily expensive if we're talking about historic numbers. And then food, which is still around 9%, almost three times what the overall inflation rate is. So, sure, I mean, it's good news that it's coming back down. You wonder how the Bank of Canada will react here. Because if we're getting close to their window between 1% and 3%, you know, the ideal target of 2%, at some point, they're just going to add additional pounding pressure to Canadians if we see another rate hike. I mean, our household debt is already way out of control, and that's, I guess, our own faults necessarily for, you know, no one forced us to borrow money or what have you, but maxing out our credit cards and the lines of credit has become a necessary evil for so many people. But will they jack up the rates again? Will they ultimately drive the country into a recession? Because when we don't have money to buy other goods as opposed to simply service our debt and pay our bills, then we could be headed down a strange road. And the Bank of Canada, unpredictable to say the very least. How do you want to take it on? We can do it. Someone wanted me to bring this back up because it is such a big story and it kind of went by the wayside, and let's do it. And this regarding, you know, we can talk about anything in healthcare, but it still galls me that the Privacy Commissioner's Office and their cyber attack report was really quite damning of the government. Now, the government will say, it also says in the report, that they've done good things since the cyber attack back in 2021 to improve the system, to protect the vulnerabilities. But the fact of the matter is, they were told and warned about a year prior to the cyber attack that we were highly susceptible to this type of, hack, this type of hacking uh, conducted by the Hive ransomware group. So the people will talk about accountability and all the rest up and down. But has there been anything, any form of accountability on this front? Virtually every single person in the province that has interacted with healthcare has seen their uh, information compromised. As clear as can be, the Privacy Commissioner's report was extremely comprehensive. Just uh, think about it on this note. Patients of Central Health from 2006 to 2021, they got your info. Grand Labrador Grenfell, 2013 to 23, they got your info. In Eastern Health, 2010 to 2021, they got your info. If you had a COVID test performed by the province throughout the pandemic, they got your info. So when they were told, and very pointedly that there was risks and maybe there's you know issues not only at the uh, health information group but at the department of health community services and the staff i mean when john haggy was minister haggy was asked about his knowledge he said there was no real red flags turns out he wasn't fully read in as to what the report said so 
there has to be some little backpedal there, but they talk about accountability all the time. This was a huge, gaping, avoidable problem that we didn't do enough when warned about the vulnerabilities in the system, and someone wanted me to speak to that, and I'm happy to do exactly that. All right, so what's that squiggle there? Okay. So protest is a key part of a functioning democracy. So whether you choose to get a social media campaign going, to protest in person at the Confederation Building or Parliament Hill within the parameters of reasonable decorum, sit-ins, signs and banners, yelling, waving flags, whatever you choose to do. But some forms of protest have been absolutely counterproductive. This is specifically about the issues regarding the wildfire season and climate change. Throwing marinara sauce or milk or muck at a priceless piece of art is doing nothing to advance the conversation. You might think that when you take that activity on that you can quickly turn the media and the general public's attention to your concerns regarding climate change, but it doesn't work. Same thing in the world of the wildfires and people thinking that a way to advance a climate change conversation is to light the forest on fire. That is not anywhere near a good idea. For starters, it's a criminal act. You're putting people's lives at risk. Not only the damage to the forest, but the potential to burn down homes and businesses, maybe people to be killed. And the conversation doesn't change. So yes, there are people setting fires. And yes, part of their motivation is to turn people's focus to climate change and things we can do to slow the impact of climate change based on man's behavior and carbon emissions. I understand the thought, but it doesn't work. Here's why. Everyone who thinks that climate change is not really an issue that needs to be broached, even though it absolutely is, is that they'll quickly say, well, the wildfire season is all just because of arson. And so did that advance the conversation regarding climate change? Absolutely not. A criminal act is, generally speaking, a really poor idea if you're trying to advance a cause. I know it's emotional. I know people will see their activism as the, their civic duty. But starting a fire really is not helping the conversation. The fact of the matter is, it's been an extremely busy wildfire season in the country. And yes, there has been plenty of fires been set by arsonists. They've been investigated and arrested and should be punished. But we've already had more square kilometers of forest burnt this year than we did ever before. The record was set back in 1989 of 75,596 square kilometers. As of the middle of the year this year, we've exceeded 76,000 square kilometers. There's about 490 fires currently burning in the country, 255 of them were considered to be out of control. What percentage of either of those numbers was because of arson or lightning strikes or reckless Canadians? There's no real clear breakdown. But, you know, if we want to have the climate change conversation, we, we could and we should. But for folks who are thinking you're advancing any cause, even one iota, but starting a fire, the fact of the matter is you're bringing the conversation backwards. Because no one's willing to entertain a conversation about the reality of the conditions that have led to the serious wildfires, the prevalence of the wildfires, the numbers of wildfires, because arson is not helping. You want to take it on? Let's do exactly that. All right, a couple of quick notes on the uh, talk about wildfires. Richard Didham called yesterday about the potential for a forest fire and a heightened risk around Ripple Pond. And, you know, he brought forward the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And the fact of the matter is, he's probably not wrong that there's a real problem with the heightened risk out there in that area, given some of the remnants of old mill operations. But here's the problem. This is it right here. Okay. So Ripple Pond 
is not an NCC property. Ripple Pond is in the headwaters of the Colnet River, not the Salmonera River watershed where the NCC properties are located. So it, it still doesn't take away from the fact that Mr. Didham is probably absolutely right that without the cleanup, we're just headed down a wildfire disaster road. So the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is promoting uh, protection for that area under the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Act. It's not uh, an NCC property. I'd, I'd offer that correction just for accuracy's sake. All right, a couple of health care notes before we get to your calls. W everybody knows the problems. There's about 6 million Canadians without a family doctor. But then you hear stories like this, which absolutely will drive you around the bend. You know, a person who's born in Canada, left for medical training, practiced elsewhere, and in this case, it's Dr. Stephanie DeMarkey, born in Hamilton, Ontario, wants to come back and take over for her mother, who's uh, a soon-to-be retired family physician. It's been 16 months while she's been working towards getting her accreditation to practice in the country. She trained at the University of Queensland in Australia, spent her residency and years as a GP working in rural Australia. So she is absolutely qualified. Now, everybody agrees we have to ensure that your training, education, and accreditation is up to Canadian standards. But she's been at this for years. So 16 months later, she had to move back to Australia to keep her Australian license active while they try to deal with things like verifying her medical degree. They think that would be pretty fundamental. Postgrad certificate, resume, police background check. So for all the hurdles that are put forward, and with so many Canadians who simply need to get a doctor, this is all done by uh, an organization called the Medical Council of Canada. They're a quasi-independent body, but they are fueled and funded by the federal government. There's a tune of almost $30 million last year, or in June. There was an announcement of almost $30 million for their operations. And we also know the issues of Canadians who do their med school elsewhere and can't get a residency position here. You know, it's one thing to come back and be a family doctor, but we can't even get Canadian-born, uh, trained international physicians to get a residency. So we seemingly are doing all we can through the mess that is the bureaucracy to not improve the lot of lives of Canadians. Now, a couple of good things have happened. You know, amongst the Atlantic premiers, the establishment of the Atlantic Physicians Registry, allowing the doctors free flow through all the four Atlantic provinces. There should be an extension for all healthcare workers to be covered under that registry. But anyway... Just imagine, 16 months later, a Canadian-born, Australian-trained doctor can't get accreditation to be a family doctor to replace her mother. Absolute madness. All right, let's get a good one, fun one going before we get to your calls. Congratulations to the Lees up in Mobile. Brenda and Bob Lee, <laughs> they've opened up what they call uh, Mom's Little White Chapel. If you've ever been to Vegas, it's absolutely famous, the Little White Wedding Chapel. So they've recreated it up the southern shore in Mobile. They built it, uh, they got a custom-made sign, and the Elvis stained glass that is presented for the folks who are going to get married there, or simply go to have a look at it. You know, it always felt to me that it was kind of fun, that people were willing and wanting to elope and just have a very carefree, uh, low-cost wedding down in Sin City, and <laughs> you're going to be able to do it here in Mobile. So she woke up one night and says, I got a crazy idea. And her husband, Bob, says, that's not the first time she's had a crazy idea. But now they got it off the ground. And it looks like it's been pretty impressive uh, appetite for it so far. So they're going to have their first wedding on the 14th of July. In the first 48 hours, they had a bunch or half a dozen brides looking to have their uh, nuptials at the Mom's Little White Wedding Chapel in Mobile. Love it. And then via social media and otherwise, now they've got bookings up to 32. Now, I don't know if that includes an actual Elvis. And maybe we can speak to the lease, because I think that is an absolutely brilliant idea. Just look at the cost and the stress of trying to organize a wedding. 
And this might be exactly what the doctor ordered if you are so inclined. So anyway, congratulations to the league. Looks like that's going to be a home run. Right, we're on Twitter. or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Tiller. Good morning, Mayor Tiller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? Not too bad at all, Patty. I just Great. want to take this opportunity to uh, promote a couple upcoming events that we got in uh, in our beautiful region. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Friday, actually, uh, at 1 p.m., we're going to be having the grand opening of our uh, regional forest training grounds. Um, also, in the other departments in the uh, in the region, done up letters of support, sent away to government. Uh, government chucked in uh, a grant which helped cover half the cost, and between some fundraising and, and other means, we we got the rest of it. And right now, we have three sea cans that are, have been constructed uh, to make a dwelling. It's it's fully furnished, complete with cupboards, washer dryers, you name it. Just like a full house. We have the fake smoke. We have the the propane heat we also have a massive area for vehicle extrication and pretty much anything else that we might want to might want to train on who conducts the training uh a lot of it is only in house we have members that have gone and and done training and they'll bring it back to the department and we also avail of a lot of training through fire emergency services they'll send out certified trainers mm-hmm. and with a reasonable approach they can come out and they can train three or four from each department in our region and then they can take that information to their members and and train each other train the trainer kind of approach and in your region would all the firefighters be volunteers we are yep okay because there's a couple of hybrid models around i was just wondering like whether or not out in cbs there's a uh, a paid captain and volunteer firefighters i was just wondering what the force looked like where you were so Inside of this world, we do know that it's becoming a little bit more difficult in the volunteer world to backfill when people move on. What's it like inside the world of volunteer firefighters? We are we're holding our own right now. We were lucky we just recruited seven new members, uh, some younger members, some members with the, uh, medical training, some members who have had firefighter training offshore. We've probably got 40 on our roster, and in a few years, that could be definitely down to 25 or 30 with the aging demographic we got. I know that we're probably the the best off, for lack of a better word, compared to some of the other departments, number-wise. Um, we're just this training ground was was we had letters of support from Lumsden to Hare Bay, but we'll we'll open up to any department that wants to come in and train. I mean, it makes no difference. But number-wise, we're probably one of the better off ones on the area. So that's why it's nice to be able to to train together with different towns because you don't know when your town is going to be integrating its services with another town for a major structure fire. At least you know that your training is equivalent to the other towns. Absolutely. And I mean, I've got nothing but respect for uh, people who are willing to be firefighters as a volunteer. A tremendous, uh, tremendous community spirit or pride of place. Uh, you say you want to talk about a couple of things you have upcoming, Mayor? Yeah, uh, well, I want to talk about our Canada Day uh, celebrations. Sure. Uh, we're going to start off at uh, with 11 o'clock at the Beatic Arena. We have some face painting. We have bouncy castles, hot dogs, cake. There's a bike parade for the kids that they want to take and decorate their bikes and ride them around the arena. We will also be drawing for uh, two new bikes that's going to be handed out. It's all free of cost. It's something that we, we love to do every year to give back to the community. So if you're you're driving around now and you're wondering what to do for Canada Day, the Arctic Arena is open to anybody province-wide or if you're, if you're planning on coming in from out of the province. And that's going to be followed uh, on Saturday night by 
what I would consider one of Newfoundland's best cover bands, Beck at the Ballpoints. They're going to start performing at 10.30 at the Beatty Arena. Doors open 9.30. And they're going to be carrying on to about 2. And then Sunday night, we're going to have our fireworks at Norton School. So it's going to be a nice little weekend. Uh, stress-free, bring the family, have some fun, and enjoy what Newest Valley has to offer. Love it. And, of course, I mentioned it yesterday. I'm trying to find the gentleman's name so I don't give out bogus information. But on your Apple phone calendar, you know, if you see July 1st, it simply say Canada Day. And this uh, this guy named Stephen Clark, who's listener to of the program, he lobbied Apple. And now, eventually, if you, uh, if you click July 1st on your Apple phone calendar, it will actually say Memorial Day in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's a good effort by Stephen. Bravo. Yeah, it is. We always make an effort when we open up our uh, our Canada events to acknowledge the, the great sacrifice that those people made at Beaumont Hamill, and it, it'll never be forgotten. Absolutely not. It changed the course of the province, to be honest, if we're really thinking about the numbers of young men that didn't make it home. Uh, anyway, Mayor Teller, before I let you go, uh, we do know that your area, you've got shared services and some form of amalgamation or regionalization. I don't know how you like to characterize it, but now that the province has moved away from what they were calling regionalization or a county system uh, approach, just simply talk about shared, uh, shared services. What would be your message to some of your fellow municipal leaders about how to approach that conversation? I mean, Maybe a couple of specifics of where you found some upside. Well, definitely when it comes to the volunteer fire services, uh, the, the fire services in our area are very much in communication with one another. We had a major structure fire a couple of months ago, and we called on our neighboring community alums for some extra manpower and another tanker, and they were there as quick as they could have been. Uh, when you have that kind of co- collaboration between something so, so, so vital as fire services, uh, you know, it can only lead to good things with, with regards to jobs and life services or with climate change. You don't know which town is going to be struck with a wildfire or with a with a flood or, or hurricanes on the coast. We all got to be on the same page. Uh, we also have certain pieces of equipment, sewer jets and, and excavators that we'll uh, make available to the other towns. It, it needs to be more of this cooperation. And, and I know I mentioned to you before, having a regional engineer that each town could, could call on, or uh, maybe if there's three or four towns that have issues with uh, vermin or with animal control, uh, with the rising crime rate in rural Newfoundland and the lack of uh, RCMP services because of their issues with recruitment, maybe a regional enforcement officer or something that can be looked at. There's many, many, many ways I think that that areas can cooperate and can make use of services without coming under the one umbrella. And it's very hard, in my opinion, to have a council that incorporates four towns or five towns that are so far apart geography-wise. It's going to be something we have to figure out, and it's not about shoving something down people's throat that they don't want. It's the reality of some of the economies of scale and aging population, and if we don't figure out a shared service model, we're just going to have the long, prolonged, cruel demise of community without you know, doing what we have to do or what we can do to try to get out ahead of it. I appreciate the time again this morning, Mayor Teller. Good to have you on. Thank you, sir. We'll be in touch. Take, take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Mayor Mike Tiller out of New West Valley. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll share an important story about young Amelia and what it means for their fifth annual blood donation drive that's coming up. Shortly, we'll hear from Veronica Vardy. Veronica and Doug, they heard some news that none of us want to hear. We'll have that story, and hopefully we'll encourage you to donate blood at this fifth annual blood drive. Don't go away. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Veronica Vardy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm uh, calling in to talk about blood donations. And the reason is, is that uh, we have a big anniversary coming up on July 4th of this year. That's the anniversary, the fifth year anniversary, as you mentioned, of the day that I brought Amelia to Emerge. And, um, you know, I had brought her in because she didn't seem like herself that weekend. And when we got there and they did her blood work, her hemoglobin was 54, and it should have been a minimum of 115. Her platelets were at one. They should have been a minimum of 150. So the first thing that the doctors told me was that she needed blood, and she needed it, like, right now. She needed it fast. She was in a critical state. And um, the other thing that they told me was that uh, she likely had blood cancer, which was confirmed within 24 hours that she had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So it, um, you know, it was a very traumatic uh, time <laughs> to be told that about your two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And as I would sit there in the hospital, I was always so grateful to all of the people who donated blood and just gave from their heart on the possibility that somebody would need blood and need their blood type and um you know it was it was really important to amelia's recovery she had 11 transfusions in her first 10 days of cancer treatment um we had to get her well enough with blood to be able to receive chemo so her first treatments were literally blood transfusions and we would like we every year since since the first anniversary of her diagnosis on or around July 4th, we've continued to host blood drives. And this year is our fifth annual blood drive. It's next week from Tuesday, July 4th until Thursday, July 6th. And, you know, we want to use it as the opportunity to thank blood donors for all that they do and encourage new blood donors to get out there and donate blood. And if you're able to book an appointment, during our reserve times next week, it would really help Canadian Blood Services get like reach their goal of the amount of appointments that they want to have next week, and um, you know it, it would certainly bring a smile to our faces and Amelia's as well. She's seven years old now, and she she always takes pride in knowing that she's helping other people get the blood that they need. I think it's terrific. How do you go about organizing a formal blood drive and you know to celebrate uh, the blood that Amy, uh, pardon me, uh, Amelia was able to get? So, what does that look like? Even though I'm sure for Canadian Blood Services, when you put a face to the issue, when you put a story like this out, it's probably very helpful to them. But how does that work that you have this officially done? It's it's actually easy. Um, we're starting to get back into the groove of things um, now that COVID is over. Prior to COVID. You know, all you had to do is say you wanted to do it, reach out to Canadian Blood Services, um, you know, through their website or um, I know 
you know, I'm not I'm not really sure how I got Gordon's uh, email first going off, but um, I reached out to Canadian Blood Services and was put in touch with uh, Gordon Skiffington, who arranges their uh, blood donor events. I believe it was through the website. Um, at the time, before COVID, we were able to just pick a date and have people come in. Since COVID, you do need to book an appointment in order to go in. But now, this year, is the first year that I've noticed that things are, you know, pretty much back to the pre-COVID level. You can organize a bus shuttle to come to your place of employment and pick up all your employees and bring them to uh, Canadian Blood Donor Services. And... Um, you know, the restrictions regarding masks and whatnot are relaxed. So all you have to do literally is reach out to Canadian Blood Services, indicate why you want to do it. They actually help you with doing the poster. They they do the bookings now for you online. Like people will just go in to book for Amelia's event. They'll go in under blood.ca. Um, once they sign in, look for partners and then choose in honor Amelia Saunders. And then you'll be given all the appointments for her blood donor event. And it's coming up uh, Tuesday, July the 4th from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Wednesday the 5th from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Thursday the 6th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, thanks for doing this uh, this morning, Veronica. No problem. And uh, just one more thing. If people did miss out on any of that information or they'd like to see the poster that we have, they can go to Amelia's Facebook page, which is Amelia's All, so A-M-E-L-I-A apostrophe S, A-L-L for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Appreciate this. Good luck. Hopefully it's a big success. Thank you so much. You're Have welcome. a good day. You too, Veronica. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that's terrific. Uh, let's see here. So Brenda and Bob Lee, they own Mom's Place Bed and Breakfast up the southern shore. And a guest came over and said that they, they'd like to have a wedding there. And then Brenda goes to bed. She pops up at 4 a.m. with a crazy idea. Not the first time that Bob's heard a crazy idea from Brenda. And now they're the owners and the operators of Mom's Little White Chapel in Mobile, the southern shore. Join us on line number four is Brenda Lee. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? I couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, I'm fabulous. So talk us through. So you're operating the bed and breakfast, and a guest comes up and asks about a wedding, and what happened? Well, we got questioned on a wedding one Wednesday, or actually it was a Sunday. Um, the girl called me, and she was looking to get married, and I was all for it, so she wanted to get married up at our Airbnb. And I asked her what date, and she was looking for Thursday in three day in four days' time. So within four days, we put together a little wedding, went to Parody City, got a few decorations, and ta-da, it went awesome. And then, of course, that night, I was thinking about it, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I said, Bob, get up, get up. we got to get a wedding chapel on the go. This is Mom's place. We need, we need something more. We need something like in Vegas. And, and, and we went from there, yeah. <laughs> and so here we go. Now you've got Mom's Little White Chapel, and it looks like bookings have been pretty brisk. Oh, my goodness. It's, we've got weddings starting July 14th, and I've got eight then within a couple of weeks. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Where did you and Bob get married? We got married, actually, on Waterford Bridge Road at the Waterford Manor. Nice. So what's the experience going to look like? Because I've been to Vegas a few times, and I know what the Little White Chapel is and, you know, the Elvis impersonators, which are all over Las Vegas. I do know you had a partnership with uh, Dave and Jillian at uh, SGO Designer Glass to put the stained glass Elvis in place. Is there going to be an actual Elvis impersonator conducting the marriages? 
Well, myself, I will be doing the marriages, okay. but my husband, we have, um, if you do want to be married by Elvis, that certainly can be arranged. I do have a costume in place. So we have a couple of um, weddings booked for Elvis to be the officiator. And it's going to be quite fun, actually. We have one on the 16th coming up um, and that's Elvis, so that's going to be really good. It's going to be a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. What's yet to be done at the chapel? I know there's some talk about a steeple to be added. What else are you trying to work on to get it exactly exactly how you want it? We Well, we just got the steeple to go now, and my husband does um, stamped concrete, so we're doing like an outside like an entranceway. It's going to be really nice with the big red stamped concrete heart. So... That's pretty much we own. We've got the out, the inside almost all complete. It's just the outside now we're going to be working on in the next couple of weeks. Well, we'll be at it now for the next couple of years because, of course, I'm going to add on and add on and add on. <laughs> but it's, it's a good place to get married, and it's positive vibes, and it's cheap. It's, you don't have to go in the hole over getting married. You know what I mean? What's it going to cost? Well, we got packages that start from 500 and go to 2000 And the $2,000 package basically is that you can come here with your wedding party. You get the two cabins, and we both our cabins have hot tubs, and we've got a heated pool on site. And each of the cabins have double jacuzzi bathrooms. So it's a really nice spot to come and relax. And we're in the woods, so you're kind of like away from everything, but you're only 40 minutes out of town at the same time. It's just, I mean, obviously a big dollop of romance. You have to come up about renewal. You know what? If I had my time back when we just had our 25th anniversary, talked about renewing our vows, I tell you, one of these days, I'm absolutely standing in front of Elvis with my wife. I can guarantee you. You have to. Come up and do it. (laughs) I I can't wait. Uh, Brenda, so uh, take this question for how it's intended. So when I see these kinds of chapels in Vegas, for instance, it's not only about fun and positive vibes and romance. There's also an intentional bit of cheese associated with it, which I think is actually... Part of the fun as opposed to that being a criticism is that what you're going for yes exactly like <laughs> yeah yeah we want it all fun i want it to be all fun and just like good memories and good vibes and we got the big elvis stained glass window like that is awesome it's the best purchase i've ever purchased in my life and patty i bought a lot let me tell you and i love the window love it love it love it Brenda, listen, say hello to Bob for us. I look forward to seeing the chapel and you guys when we make our way up the southern shore for the next time. Uh, Great to have you on the show this morning. Good luck with the wedding season. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day, Patty. And everybody, come on up to the wedding chapel. There we go. All the best, Brenda. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. That sounds like a great option. Just think about the monies that some people spend on weddings. Now, we didn't cheap out on ours necessarily either, although we got a lot of fairly free or inexpensive because we got married at the hotel that I used to work at. So in, in Jasper, but that sounds like an awesome opportunity to save some money, have some fun, and you can still, you know, share the experience with some family and friends in the hot tub or the Double jacuzzi, not too bad. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I have two things I'd like to talk about today, but I'll be as quick as I can. No worries. Um, When COVID started, I... um, started ordering my groceries online um, just, you know, for the safety feature of it. 
And up to up until yesterday, I've been having you know a, a good um, experience with these people, the, these online people. So uh, yesterday, I ordered two hundred dollars uh, of groceries from a big box store here in town. And uh, they give you the options of, of what time frame you'd like to, your groceries delivered. So I said, well, between 10 and 11 a.m. And so uh, 10, I got a, a notice from this big box store saying that uh, your groceries will arrive shortly. This was about 9.30. And uh, then it said, I got another notification saying your groceries were successfully delivered. So I looked out my front door. There were no groceries there. So for the next three hours... I spent on the phone, luckily I was off work, um, I spent three hours calling this big box store. Then I had to call head office. And then they told me they would contact the delivery service. Um, they they hire different people to deliver the groceries. So I said, well, can you give me their number? And they said, no, we, we don't have a number for them. And I thought, okay, well, how are you going to get in contact with them? But anyway, um, about two hours later, I get a call from the delivery service. And they said, your groceries were delivered to this address. And I said, no, I'm sorry. They said, well, we have a picture here. The driver took a photo of your front door with the groceries delivered. And I said, well, can you send me that photo? And they said, no, we can't. So I asked them where they were located. And they said, we can't tell you that. And I said, okay. So as it stands now, I have no groceries. Um, The big box store deducted my bank account or my visa with $200. And uh, they said, we will investigate it. And if, you know, you're found to be, um, you know, that they made an error, uh, in seven to ten business days, we'll refund your money. And I said, I don't want my money back. I I just want my groceries. So I said, is there any way you can do up a new order and send it to me? And they said, no, um, we only offer a refund. So luckily, you know, I, I can do without the $200. But I was thinking of anybody low income, depending on this $200 and depending on these groceries, uh, you know, they're making the person wait, even though it's not my fault. Um, the delivery driver uh, service said to me, well, walk around your neighborhood and see if there's any groceries on the front steps. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing that. So I just wanted to let the, the public know uh, be careful about these online uh, ordering because you could be left without money and I don't even know where the investigation is going to end up. You know, I could be out to $200 and and still, like I said, no groceries. So um, they, they refused to send me a photo of, of the groceries at my front door. So I don't know if the driver took them himself. Uh, I have no idea. Um, so needless to say, I won't be ordering online anymore. Fair so, enough. There's, you know, online's not ideal. For some people, it's, uh, you know, it's efficient for them, and so be it. I don't order groceries online personally. But I wonder why they won't send you the picture, because we had a similar circumstance last Christmas where we were told by a notification that a Christmas gift had been dropped off by a delivery driver, and Colin said we didn't get anything. And when my wife went to the, their office, they very quickly showed her a photograph and shared it with her, and consequently they delivered it to the wrong address and eventually got rectified but in addition to that why don't delivery drivers just knock so that you know whether or not you've given the groceries to the right person and or they got delivered period on the online ordering it it gives you the option of delivery instructions and i said uh leave it on my front doorstep so i guess i I should have put down knock on the door ring the doorbell or something um but you know with my crazy work schedule i find online ordering um you know, efficient. Yep. And uh, 
but now, you know, I'm going to be skeptical because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just had to jump in the car and, and go and get them myself. Um, and like I said, I, I still may be out to $200. And I asked the, the guy on the phone, I said, look, you know, if I could see that photo, I, I could verify. And he said, well, I can describe the photo to you. And I said, okay, well, describe it to me. And he didn't describe my front entrance at all. He was totally off. So... I don't know where this is going to end up. But anyway, I just wanted to let the public know, uh, be careful. Um, another thing I want to touch on quickly, if I may, um, I hope there's somebody from the city of St. John's listening because uh, over the last you know, little while, it seems like they're, they're bullying the vulnerable people in the city. You know, it started with, well, I, it started a long time ago, but the, the, the most recent cases that I've uh, kind of kept track of was the lady who was evicted from her apartment for smoking outside. Yeah. I think she was in her 80s, and as it turned out, she there was a designated smoking entrance uh, by the entrance, a smoking area, but she couldn't get there because of the terrain and and, and the fact that she was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So the city evicted an 80-year-old. Then they find uh, a 70-year-old, uh, $5,000 for feeding the pigeons in her backyard. Now, I know, you know that that can cause trouble with rodents and, and whatnot, but $5,000, Patty? Yeah, I don't know if that's actually made its way all the way through the small claims. So it's the possibility for a $5,000 fine, but that seems absurd to me. Certainly, there's, you know, they'll try to make a distinction between a backyard uh, bird feeder versus putting out the feed in your hand around the roof or whatever the case may be. I know they are different things, but $5,000 for that sort of breach is a bit much. And then it was, uh, they took the bus shelters away next to the gathering place. And now with the recent uh, one about the bandstand, they were putting up a gate. They put a big security fence, yeah. You know, the city, they don't seem to have their priorities straight. I mean, they're they're addressing, you know, uh, the graffiti, that's fine. They're addressing all these different issues. When the roads are not fit to drive on, and there was a, a guy on your news story this morning talking about the litter down at Kitty Vitty how the dumpster hadn't been dumped. So tourists are making comments about uh, the state of our city, how dirty it is and stuff like that. So the city really, they really need to get their priorities straight. Fix up the roads, get rid of the garbage, and like I said, deal with the graffiti and, and the other stuff, you know, secondly or thirdly. Um, you know, this big ongoing thing on Pitts Memorial Drive, yes, I suppose, you know, the, the, those medians have to be replaced and whatnot. But the roads in and out, like I um, travel from like the Village Mall area to Mm -hmm. Kilbride area. I mean, (laughs) I have a new car and I tell you, uh, you know, it's not pleasurable. It's just bumps and bangs and and gaps in the road. And, you know, why don't the city, I don't know. uh, It just seems that they're bullying the vulnerable and... The, the priority stuff is not getting done. Yeah, I mean, yeah. some of the cases are different, even though we're talking about uh, vulnerable citizens. You know, the eviction thing should have been addressed with just making the smoking section as accessible for this resident. I mean, I know it eventually yeah. got worked out. She landed on her feet, so to speak. Then the issue about the fine for feeding the pigeons is just obscenely high. But then, you know, things have become a bit more complicated, like homelessness. I know the city can say that the security fence is about safety and someone apparently got into an electrical room, which absolutely is a problem, but we're basically just diverting someone's sleep from there to somewhere else. Nothing was settled or solved. That person who was sleeping on the stage is still homeless. So those those kind of 
issues are more complex, I would suggest. But still, you know, we got to get out in front of this. This has been brewing for quite a long time. Homelessness in this city is, I've never seen anything quite like it, to be honest. And I've, you know, I'm born and raised here. So we've got to do better on a variety of fronts. It's good for all of us. And it's not about spending money on the lazy louts who blah, blah, blah. It's not that at all. It's a responsibility that we all share. And there's a big economic upside to it if you need to put things in the dollars and cents because it's going to deal with things regarding the healthcare system, possibly with the criminal justice system, both very expensive, both bad for our public safety, both bad for our access to healthcare. So maybe we can do better for all involved. Uh, last thoughts to you before we take a, another call. No, that was just the two points I, I needed to get off my chest. And, uh, you know, the city really got smart enough and, and make it, you know, not only for its residents, but for tourism. Sure. You know, downtown is a state. It's a mess. You know, you go on George Street for brunch, uh, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, and the beer bottles and, and just the, the garbage and it just, oh, it's terrible. It, it's embarrassing. Uh, very quickly, so with your grocery purchase online, does your credit card offer you any protection? Um, no, what I did, I used my Visa debit. Oh, I see. Uh, so it came out of my, my bank account. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting on that. And, again, it's just frustration of... of you know, I, like I said, I spent three hours on the phone calling different people. And the driver, uh, the delivery company called me. I couldn't contact them. I I wasn't given the number. The big store, big box store said, no, we don't have a number for them. <laughs> so I don't know. It, it's, it's like a big conspiracy. So there's somebody else. Oh, and uh, quickly, um, the, the delivery driver uh, service told me, he said, uh, yeah, he said, I can send the driver back out and have a look and see if he delivered in the wrong place. And I said, hang on now. This was two hours ago. I've been two hours or almost three trying to reach you. I don't want groceries that have been sitting on someone's doorstep for three hours. The ice cream is melted. The meat is, you know, bad. So, you know, they they, they offered me different, you know, walk around your neighborhood, see if there's any groceries <laughs> Yeah, sort of uh, shirking their own responsibility. And, you know, I think as neighbors we play a role here too because the whole issue or the concept of the porch pirate, that's real. It's very, very real. They know deliveries are being made, uh, potentially expensive items just being laid on front stoops, and people willfully walking or driving by say, oh, there's a package. I'm, I'm curious what's in that, and they steal it. So we know that there's a lot of people who steal the eyes out of your head, and they absolutely are pillaging our porches as well. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, take care. You bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. Yeah, the porch part, that's a real thing. All right, quickly before we get to the news, I didn't intend to suggest that there's only one paid staffer at the CBS Fire Department. I just knew that the captain, who I've spoken with many times, is. But here's a clarification, just for accuracy's sake. Okay, so the CBS Fire Department is fully paid 24-7. There are four shifts of seven members per shift. The captain, the lieutenant, five firefighters working 24, 72, 24 hours on, 72 hours off. Same as St. John's. Okay. If they need extra manpower, they do indeed have the ability to utilize volunteer members. There we go. So that's the accuracy as provided by Jennifer. Appreciate that. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll talk about the sale of the St. Thomas Aquinas Parish of St. Lawrence. Talk about the fishery, cell service, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go ahead and go to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Ernest Decker. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Okay, this morning. How about you? 
Yes, pretty good. You, uh, Patty, I was just calling about the, the commercial cod fishery. Well, the northern cod was announced yesterday, and uh, there's nothing here on the Gulf fishery. Uh, but uh, Joyce Murray, our federal minister of fishery, she closed the commercial fishery here in the Gulf for one year. Yep. So the one year is up right now. So there was no announcement uh, for the Gulf whatsoever. So I was just wondering, Patty, if you could get somebody. Uh, I tried to reach the union on a number of occasions, but I haven't got any call back yet. So I was just wondering if you could get in contact with if I was Craig Pretty maybe or Jason Spengo or, you know, just to see what went wrong with that, not open a, a cod, commercial cod fishery here in the Gulf. As you know, we all we all depend on uh, commercial cod here in the uh, cod fishery here in the Gulf. Right? So, you know, closing fisheries is taking parts of our incomes, you know. So, so right now we're kind of out of work, so we're looking forward to going back to work at this commercial cod, but there's, uh, there's no announcement whatsoever. Yet, you know, and, and then she, and then Joyce Murray, our federal minister of fisheries, she opens the, the recreational fishery for the, you know, I got nothing against recreational fishery, but she opens for the world. Here, the world can come in and catch a fly fish. Any, anybody in the world can come here in the Gulf and catch a fly cod. No. So, you know, I don't think it's very fair to commercial fish harbors. You know, the fellows that hold their license for, you know, I've had one for 50 years, right? So, so you know, I was kind of looking forward to going back. There's a lot of us was going back next week at the commercial cod. Eh? Yeah, the thought you know, is that. I was just wondering. Sure. Was that? I, the thought is that in the recreational food fishery, it probably adds up to less than 1% of the total allowable catch for all cod. But I did not know that there wasn't an announcement about the Gulf because it was, last year was only two days after the 30th anniversary of the cod moratorium that Minister Murray called the one year moratorium in the Gulf. You know, it's saying that the cod's in a critical zone, give time for the young fish to mature. But that doesn't mean that we don't need an update. So we have. Absolutely, we'll reach out to the union, see if they can give us some information about yeah, what the I, status will be well, this year. Yeah, right on. So, you know, we yeah, we like to know why it's not been reopened, you know. So, yeah, uh, see, yeah so, you know, as I say, our macro has gone to recreation. I got nothing against recreation, but, you know, just that, just that, uh, Patty, we we as fish harvesters depend on these species for a living, you know. So, you know, I just, I just like for you, Patty, as a host of the VOCM that reach out to Greg Pretty or, or someone with the or DFO to find out why why it has made oatmeal in the Gulf. Yeah, I will do exactly that here this morning, especially it's probably easier to get the union than it is to get either DFO or the minister's office to come on, so I absolutely will do exactly that this morning. If I remember correctly, Ernest, in the recent past, even the commercial cod fishery in the Gulf, I mean, it only lasts even probably a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, we we used to get about that. Well, we used to get a long time, but used, but but over the last few years we've been getting like three weeks. That's what we just get. Over. But but it was all a help, Patty. You know, it yep. all helped to our to our income. So so you know, same as if I said to you, three weeks of your income is gone. You know, right? Pretty much. So, so but that's but it's all a help. You know, to make a living. Oh, I don't deny it. And I, but but right now it's gone. Eh? It's gone right now. So I don't. So I don't know what's going to happen from this day forward. Or they? Anyway, Patty, I'd like for you to reach out to probably your FFW, Greg Pretty, or Jason, or somebody, and send and, and let the public know what's exactly going on with the golf cart. Happy to do it. Thank you very much, sir. You're welcome.
Thanks for the call, Ernest. Okay, sir. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. And on that front, we'll just a quick uh, Moose mention here. Moose, south of Big Pan on Route Number 10, just outside of Witless Bay, so watch your bobber there and elsewhere. And in the world of the fishery and the snow crab, I think we're approaching around 50% of the total allowable catch, but this year is 54,000 metric tons. All the crab plants are on bust. And there's some thought that they might indeed be able to see the harvesters land the entirety of the total allowable catch, if not get very close. And, you know, still, the whole sticker shock thing, or an average of over six bucks a pound last year, two and a quarter this year. So if you're in that world and have any thoughts about whether or not we're going to see the total 54,000 tons landed, we're happy to take that conversation on. And now the newly minted, for the second time, Minister of Fisheries, Elvis Loveless, has his hands full to try to get something figured out here, especially on how we set the price but if you want to talk snow crab as well we can do exactly that let's go to line number three good morning debbie etchegary you're on air you're on the air good morning and thank you for taking my call no uh, just want to make a little uh, correction there uh, the gentleman i spoke with uh, when he made the announcement said that it was saint thomas aquinas parish that was for sale uh, it's the church in saint thomas aquinas parish it also has the same name uh, just to let you know we had a meeting last evening on Friday, we found out that the church was uh, for sale, was, was up and, and uh, bought, exactly, really, just pending some conditions that had to be met. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the meeting, we had a lot of questions, and one was, uh, when this process first started, the committee uh, representing the parishioners of St. Thomas Aquinas Parish put in a bid for the church, and it was not accepted. And so they were told by the someone in with the archdiocese that when another bid came in, they would be told and they would be able to put in another bid. Because at the point in time when it all started, they first bought the parish hall that was up for sale and they used they were using that to garner money and raise funds for the for the whole endeavor. And they were ready actually to pretty much put in a bid soon. And I guess on Friday, they were pretty much got it by finding out that there is uh, another uh, a bid went in. It's been accepted, pending conditions, and really what we're looking at is trying to find out who the person, or um, we figure it's one person that bought the bid, bought the, uh, the church, excuse me, put in the bid, because we're trying to reach out and let them know that really the church isn't closed up. It's viable. It's being used. Uh, you know, and and our intention through this committee was to put in a good bid for the second time, purchase the church, and keep our church here going. And there's a lot of confusion, and we just don't understand how it happened. And so I just wanted to reach out and put it out there to the public. Maybe the person that's uh, that put in the bid doesn't know that the church is still being in use in use. And, you know, just to reach out and try to find out more information so that maybe we can have a meeting or whatever. But we really do not want that church to go. We really were planning on purchasing it through the bid once we had basically got most of the hall paid for. So that's my reason for calling this morning. Fair enough. So, Debbie... Is it the case that if the church is still being used by the parishioners, that when the deal is finalized, then that will cease to happen, or that part's a little (laughs) bit confusing? That is confusing for us. As of July the 19th, I think it is, we were told uh, uh, through an email um, that the 
pending sale, that's how it was worded, the pending sale of St. Thomas Aquinas Church. If it meets all of its conditions, and one would be the financing, well, that's always in every every uh, condition, I'm assuming, but we don't know what the other conditions are. So now uh, we have a person on behalf of the uh, uh, committee that has the money and willing to put in another bid, the same one that put in the bid the first time and up the bid, but we we haven't we we're not we're not given the opportunity to do that, and I think that's just cruel, and it's just so unfair to us. Now we feel, we don't know who the person is. I we think that the uh, realtor it was used. Um, I think the realtor was from uh, Carbonier somewhere in, in, outside of this area. So we're hoping that maybe the person just sat there and said, "Oh, that's been there a little while. Now I'll I'll bid for that church. I could use that." And and hopefully maybe reach out and say, oh, you know, oh, this is being used. These these people haven't abandoned the church. We want to use it. In St. Thomas Aquinas Parish, there are uh, four churches right now. St. St. Thomas Aquinas Church in St. Lawrence is the main church, the mother church. It's fairly large. But we have we have our masses, we have our funerals, we have you know baptisms, we have it all. We're using it, and right now we don't know what we're going to do. And as of the nineteenth, I think of July, <laughs> we're out. <laughs> do you mind if I ask what the price tag was, Debbie? Uh, now I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think at the beginning it was a hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars, but I believe since that it went down by a. Uh, 10,000. That's what I'm getting from the meeting last evening, right? So, you know, I've got to say hats off to our Stella Maris Hall Committee. These three ladies took on this project less than a year ago, got uh, put in a a bid for the hall, and got that um, well over halfway paid off. And we're looking, they were being cautious. They said, look, uh, we're going to go for the hall first because that's going to be our generator. That's our money generator for to help pay for the church and, and every all of our expenses, and which they did. And their next step, which was prudent, I thought, they were going to go say, okay, now we're going for St. Thomas Aquinas Church. And, and you know, we gave them our full backing. The parishioners said, look, you guys are doing all the footwork. We'll help you where we can. You do what you can. If you feel you can't do this anymore, well, then that's it. But they are ready, willing, and able and 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 so this is where we are and i the church right now is 130 odd thousand i don't know what we don't know who made the bid we don't know what the bid was but these ladies on the committee said that they were assured whether someone miscommunicated or misspoke they were told that they would get when another bid came in they would be told and then they could put in a counter offer and it wasn't given and they were just got it on friday just absolutely got it well, hopefully there's a chance to revisit. If they were told they'd have an opportunity to match or to outbid whoever that person is, fair enough. Uh, last question. Has the Archdiocese committed that if, say, for instance, uh, your group is successful in purchasing the church, has the Archdiocese committed to providing a priest? We have a priest here now, and, and the priest is here and, and uh, living, in Saint, uh, living in Marystown. Uh, it is the priest that's... Uh, for St. Thomas Aquinas Parish, which deals with uh, Lord's Cove, Point May, Lameline, Lyme, St. Lawrence, Little St. Lawrence, that whole area, mm-hmm. we have one. And, uh, you know, he wasn't at the meeting last night because the the committee asked him not to attend. They said, look, this is uh, very emotional. We don't want you there. You're new here. 
and we didn't want him involved with that in any way. We said we, we'd appreciate it if he not show up to the meeting, and he didn't, right? Okay, I was kind of well, more more so asking if they committed to keeping the priests in the area long term, because that's been some concerns, even from some communities that I've been dealing with on the purchase of a church, is whether or not they're ever going to be able to have a priest. Uh, they didn't say anything. We okay. don't know. This is also new, and not only that, it's it's the, the time stamp on it is July the 19th. So if we sit down and do nothing, and, you know, we're, we're just, just unanswered questions, but we're hoping. Me, personally, I'm hoping the guy that put in the bid will say, oh, I didn't know this. Well, look, I'll back off, right, and let us put in a bid. And, again, I know what you're saying. What's the good of having the church if— you know, we're not going to have a priest here, but we think we will. But, you know, we don't know what's on the go. I wish you and your group good luck, especially trying to get some clarification on whether or not you can actually resubmit a bid and get back involved in the bidding process. Let us know if anything changes, Debbie. Perfect. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, there we go. See what happens there. Will I take uh, Rick here before the break, David? Uh, take a break. Rick, you're next in the queue to talk about cell service here in the province. There's actually an RFP gone out about improving cell service. I don't know if that's what Rick wants to talk about. We'll both find out right after this. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Betty. How are you today? Very well. How about you? I'm fine, thanks. Calling about Bell mobile cell phone service. Okay. Or the lack of cell phone service. I live in, in Clark's Beach. And in my own home, I only have my cell phone, and so does my wife, and we can't use it because we keep getting disconnected. So the cell phone service in all of um, the northern Conception Bay area is definitely not good. You lose it all over. You you just can't talk on it. And there's nobody to complain to at uh, Bell. Because you all you get is a um, one of these phone centers. You can't complain to them if they don't take those type of calls. I mean, cell service. I mean, even just traveling down Highway One, the Trans Canada Highway, there are a ton of dead spots. I know it's bad out where you live. In my father's community, Riverhead, you can't get any signal up and down the Buren Peninsula. It's spotty at best. So the province is indeed uh, expanding cell service or having an RFP going out to try to expand cell service. But it's infuriating to pay a bill for a service that doesn't work. Now the company will say, "Well, you don't have to use it in only Clark's Beach. You can use your cell phone anywhere in the world." But that doesn't do anything for you who live in the community. No, it doesn't do a darn thing, that's for sure. You know, um, doctor's appointments, the doctor may call, and uh, we lose the conversation halfway through. And um, any important phone call that comes through, uh, we cannot we cannot answer it because we lose the conversation. I can walk all over my house and I can take one step and I got service. I take a half a step again and I lose it. And if I go back to the spot where I had the service, I don't get it anymore. Mm -hmm. The cell phone service of our way is terrible. And then the Transcad coming into St. John's, I will call uh, my son uh, or my daughter and I will lose them probably 20 times. You know, I'm pulled over to the side of the highway now so I could speak to you uh, because I was afraid I was going to lose the service going out by Patty's back. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. 
and here I am. I'm paying um, a high cost for myself and my wife. We both have cell phones. And we're paying all this money out, and we're not getting any service at all. Totally get it, Rick. I hear from yeah. people all the time about the exact same thing. And, of course, again, the company will say that, look, we don't have enough customers in one area or another to justify the infrastructure, basically to erect a tower to make the uh, cell option actually viable and useful where you live. But that's of no help to you because people kind of need cell phones. I mean, I well, I don't know how much I need it, but I certainly use mine all the time. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Rick? Because we're trying to get the minister on about that exact issue. Uh, talk about the RFP that they're sending out. Okay, that's that's great. So hopefully the government will get after the cell phone companies to improve their service. Hope so. Okay, thanks, Patty. Thank you, Rick. Okay, thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's continue here. Let's see what's going on with the ambulance agreement hearing. We're speaking to Hubert Tall, the business manager at Teamsters Local 1855. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Not a very nice day weather-wise, but uh, I think for the people of the province, they're going to be pleased with the news I've passed on this morning. Uh, the last time we spoke, I did mention that we were going to have to go to the Labour Board for a hearing to settle our uh, essential animal service agreement and uh, you know, get a determination on if we had an effective right to strike and yep. if we could go back on strike. Uh, the deadline for the Board to issue their decision was yesterday, and we did spend all last week in hearings trying to explain you know, our different positions and whatever else. And I'm very pleased to say that the Board did issue their order yesterday, and they did determine that... Uh, we did have, we did, we did lose our effective right to strike under under the uh, EASA, and they did order us to binding arbitration. So it's uh, labor peace in the Amazon industry, at least for the foreseeable future. I'm I'm not exactly surprised. I think it was always headed this direction. How about you? I I really I had I was uh, I was optimistic. I was really hopeful that we would. But, uh, you know, just even sitting through the hearing, I wasn't so sure that that was the, the way that it was going to go. And, of course, the employer wanted to see a different approach taken to, to handling the situation. But I think this is, this is the best outcome for the people of the province and for our members. So uh, what does it mean in real terms for people who are not involved in collective bargaining, not members of the team, so not working in the paramedics business? So what does it really mean for me and you? When you pick up that phone, you call 911 or you call the office line looking for a routine ambulance, those ambulances are available for you. Simple as that. As simple as that. You know, there's, we've, been, we've been since, well, we went on strike back in January, as, as you know, and then we were ordered back to work under the new legislation that was put in place. And we worked very diligently to get up to the point where we, you know, we had the hearing last week. We presented our case, and I mean, obviously by the results, we, we presented our case well. And the Labour Board did make the determination that, you know, this was in the best interest, not only for the parties involved in the, in the dispute, but for the people of this province. Hubert, on a, a similar issue, do you have any inside baseball information about what's going on at the department level about consolidating these 60 contracts under public health or under the department itself? Because, you know, bringing in the consultants all fine. We have no earthly idea if we're headed towards some traditional hub-and-spoke model, if it'll mean more ambulances, more paramedics, or fewer of both. Do you have any idea what's going on? I, I am. I'm very disappointed to say, Patty, I don't. You know, we, uh, you know, back a while ago when uh, Minister Haggie was responsible for this department, he did say that it was going to go with a whole, whole uh, hub and spoke system, which, you know, I was very optimistic for. Uh, you know, very, 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 uh, very cost efficient model for the province to go with. 
you know, I then we were told that the you know the consulting work to consolidate all these services went back to tender. I was under the impression that a tender was supposed to be released a couple of weeks ago. So I've been checking. I haven't seen anything that indicates that that has been done. I mean, I've heard dates as early as September of this year for that process to be concluded. And but uh, again, as you know, as I said in the past on, on your on your program, the government is not reaching out to this union for any input onto where they're going, and uh, just you know, basically keeping us in, keeping us in the dark. And you know, we find out pretty much the same time everybody else does. What does the silence say to you? It's it's scary to me because it, it leads you know for you know governments have always prided themselves on their transparency, and it leads me to believe that something is going on behind the scenes that you know they they're, they're keeping their their tight to their chest so that nothing leaks out. Um, you know I I don't know what it actually means going forward. You know I I do know that the ASAs were just recently signed with the private operators to extend to 2024. But, you know, again, like I said, the, the consultant's report was supposed to be seeing consolidation starting in September of this year. So, I mean, you know, that would that leads me to believe that the two of these things are not in sync. And then, you know, the fact that, the, to the best of my knowledge, the contract hasn't been awarded for doing these consolidation reports. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating because these reports have been done. The latest one was done back in 2019, which recommended this hub-and-spoke system and showed the government how they could run it for pretty much on par with what it's costing right now to provide the current system that we have. Yeah, it'll be soon time for us all to find out, and I'm not sure why the real stakeholders like yourselves are not even in the loop, even if just vaguely about where we are, what's being considered, you know, some of the obstacles, maybe some input from you, given the fact that you are representing actual paramedics. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, Anything else you want to say this morning, Hubert, while we have you? No, I just, like I said, mostly, most times when I get on the phone with you, it's doom and gloom, but I thought that was a great piece of information. I know there are some members of the public that were quite concerned because, I mean, you know, barring a decision yesterday or barring this decision yesterday, we would have been back on strike today. And, I mean, you know, we, we saw the impact from the three days that we were off before. I mean, and, you know, I don't know where that would have left us as as a province. And, I mean, our members are really glad that we got this decision because, I mean, as we've always talked about time and time again, there's no paramedic or EMR in this province who wants to be out on strike. We got into this business to try to help people and be there when the need arises. And, uh, you know, this is this is vindication and uh, a good step forward to, uh, you know, getting us, uh, getting us resolved and recognized for what we do. And you said ASA. That's simply ambulance service agreement is it yes my apologies yes no 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 i'm just making sure that i knew what we were talking about and hopefully inside of this consultant's work we talk about how we utilize ambulances period not only for emergency but patient transport and those types of things which leads to some of the red alerts that we find ourselves experiencing i go dive on hubert i really appreciate the positive update perfect thank you very much patty you have a great day same to you sir bye-bye as Hubert Ties, Business Managers, Teamsters Local, 1855. Before the break, it's line seven. William, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hello, Patty. Yes. Uh, you just had a guy on there about uh, cell phone service. Yeah. I had the same problem for three years. I talked to everybody in Bell that I could, every office, every technician. Uh, I was at Wits End, but I did have a friend who worked on cell phone towers. He do all over North America. And he told me he don't know why Bell don't put just a small little tower in the area uh, that would give everybody cell phone service. And uh, we just get spotted cell phone service here and there. So I, we had none in this area at all. And we're apparently, they told us, we're right underneath the tower, but we didn't get it. But anyway, um, 
I took my chances and I paid $600 for a little machine called SureCall. Sure, S-U-R-E call. I came home and even before I had it on the roof of my house, my cell phone service came in. And then I put it on the roof of my house, not very far, just uh, about two feet up. And I get cell phone service and everybody else gets cell phone service for five mile distance. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. There was a lady. And nobody could tell us that. Yeah. Was, strange. So a lady from Clark's Beach sent me an email right after Rick called saying the cell phone tower in her area in and around Clark's Beach is right in her backyard and they still lose coverage all the time. I don't know why that would be. Oh, in the same boat. Yeah. And now, but the guy said, uh, now, since that, now I go and talk to, you know, some of the same officials in the same company. And now that I got it done, they're kind of saying, well, we could have told you so, because what you had to do is you had to just get your tower sort of thing and point it at the tower that is about uh, five, I say, maybe five to ten kilometers from here. So uh, the service is coming not from the tower by me, from one way, way, way far away. Incredible. That is incredible. I'm still trying to figure out a bit more about what exactly the province is trying to achieve and where they're trying to achieve it with the hope to expand cell phone service because it's one thing to expand it to areas which are currently absolutely dead zones, but the insurer liability in places where there is infrastructure is, I guess, a different conversation, albeit in the same world or same realm. I appreciate this this morning. William, anything else, sir? We're down to, yeah, we're kind of down to the lady that lost her groceries, but uh, it's intentionally being done. There's no doubt about it. It's intentionally being done for money, for money purposes. It's kind of like we we had this when I had a cell phone. I always had to pay for nine one one, but you couldn't get nine one one, right? But it's down to. Um, I'm not going to say much more, Patty. But I do a lot of research and investigation. I'm over two hundred thousand investigations in Newfoundland now, and I'm, the bottom line is Section 18. Go to Section 18 of the House of Assembly Accountability, Integrity, and Administration Act. Okay, I'll and do. you'll find out. You will find out who the guiding minds are. I'll have a look. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks, William. All right, let's go and take a break. When we come back, Graham Graham Wood, he's an operator of the Muscle Bed Tours. He wants to respond to a call we have from Ernest Decker regarding the uh, Northern Cod and the moratorium in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and maybe some reference, I guess, to the recreational food fishery, how that impacts tour boat operators. And then Howard. He was involved in a submersible rescue off the coast of Ireland in 1973. He wants to talk about the Titan, and then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the owner and operator of Musclebed Tours. That's Graham Wood. Graham, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Good. It's a beautiful sunny day here in central Newfoundland. Glad to hear it. It's perking up here in town, too, thankfully. And it's going to be a hot one, though. It's going to be so over 30 degrees here today. But uh, I'm not complaining, considering the weather we've had this spring. So uh, I wanted to talk about a couple things. I wanted to respond to a call you had this morning from, uh, I think, a fisherman on the West Coast and uh, making remarks about the food fishery, a recreational fishery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's this misunderstanding that, you know, tourists come in here from all over the world and lug away a load of fish. I mean, that's not correct at all. Most of our tourists that come in here, 
stay in our hotels, go to our restaurants, spend loads of money. And uh, in my business, I'd like to be able to take them out for seven days a week and not three days a week. Find a business the same as a fisherman. Find, uh, you know, if he wants to keep his enterprise going, he's got to be on the water and catching fish. I got to be on the water to catch fish. And I can't operate three days a week. It's just totally discriminatory compared to the other Atlantic provinces. Over the weekend, I talked to three uh, tour boat operators in PEI. And during their season, they can fish seven days a week and retain two fish per tourist. And, uh, you know, when we think of the tourists that come here, most of them don't take fish. I'll say 80%, 90% don't even want to fish. But, you know, the government of Newfoundland put out uh, Vision 2020 and talked about authentic tourism. And, you know, when you think of authentic tourism, authentic tourism would be if they catch a fish and I put it in a pot on my stove on the boat and I make a little bit of fish stew and they taste it and they go home very, very happy, tasting the freshest fish that they've ever eaten in their life. Um, you can't buy a piece of fresh cod yet until the season opens here for fishermen or commercial fishermen. So, you know, really, when you think of uh, the importance of, uh, of the fishermen being able, to, uh, being able to get their product and get their fish to market, I mean, we need to be able to market our uh, opportunities for tourists to come here and spend a load of money. Uh, you know, our $1.2 billion economy that was here in 2019, and hopefully is increasing this year. Uh, we need to be able to we need to be able to offer them, you know, seven day a week access. Uh, I lost a tour this morning for a group that wanted to go out and fish uh, next week on Tuesday, and uh, I had to tell them I can't retain fish. So, you know, that's that's our plight, and uh, we've been fighting this for a long time. I get where the commercial harvesters are coming from, you know, especially someone like Ernest, for instance, who's facing no information about whether or not there's even going to be a fishery at all where he lives and the grounds that he would fish. So I get where they're coming from. The anecdotal number is it's less than 1% of the total allowable catch in the commercial cod fishery is extracted by recreational food fishers. So... Yeah, I think it's probably really minimal. It might be helpful. I know people don't want to have uh, uh, log books or tags or licenses or what have you for the recreational food fishery, but it would be an opportunity to put the conversation to bed once and for all is if there was a season of tags, we'd know exactly how many cod were taken out of the water, whether it be by a tourist from Boston or uh, Berlin or someone from Twillingate. So, you know, I know people don't want to go down that road, but maybe a bit of data would help the conversation along a little bit too. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I mean, we've made that proposal to DFO at a, at a ground fish management plant meeting, I think, five or six years ago. We said we'd be willing to buy the tags and uh, and use those tags, even for turboboat operators. If they want that comfort level, you know, if they still want to maintain the, uh, you know, the non-tag system, allow us to use tags, and then we can give them the exact data. Because every fish that we take over under an experimental license, we have to measure, weigh, you know, put in the GPS location of the uh, of the catfish, you know, uh, the species. Uh, you know, and and certainly all uh, all Sarah species or species at risk uh, have to be returned to the water anyway. But we can document that for them. Well, you know, I've been in contact with our uh, with uh, two cabinet ministers' offices here in Newfoundland, and with my MP Clifford Small, and he's written a letter uh, to Joyce Murray. To uh, support, you know, our uh, support our claim that we want to be able to fish seven days a week, 
But like I said, in, in PEI, they can they can fish every day of the week and retain two fish per tourist on their boat uh, during their season. Yeah. I mean, I think the key argument that is, you know, use government's own words to help enhance or to create authentic experiences for the tourists. And this one will be absolutely one of them, obviously. So yeah. I appreciate that this morning. Yeah. But we uh, just for earnest, if you still listen, we are going to try to get the union on to give us what information they have about the commercial fishery in the Gulf. Yeah, okay, and and like I said, I just want to, you know, we haven't heard back at all from the provincial government, the Minister of Tourism, Minister of Fisheries, about what their response is in trying to support our businesses in the province. And, uh, you know, there were 40 uh, small tour boat operators that, that do ocean fishing. The big, uh, you know, the big guys in Bay Bowls and Twillingate and other areas uh, don't do any ocean fishing, but... Uh, there's only uh, two of us in Notre Dame Bay, uh, Captain Dave's boat tours and uh, and Musclebid boat tours that actually do ocean fishing and are certified by Transport Canada. So, you know, there's an opportunity here for fishermen, too. I mean, uh, if they meet the uh, Transport Canada, you know, requirements to take uh, to take people out to retain two fish per tourist, then it's an opportunity for them to uh, to supplement their income in all the nooks and crannies around the province and 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 be able to get some extra income uh, and provide a service authentic tourism to those uh, to those people that are in their communities 100% uh, Graham I appreciate making time anything else before I have to take a break No thank you very much Patty and I appreciate it and I hope that our politicians can finally uh, get on this and get this sorted out with uh, with DFO because they've yet to respond to our letters and our proposals uh, about this. Uh, so hopefully we can get them uh, to uh, offer some support for us. Thank you very much and have a great day. Yeah, just very quickly, Graham. So if, let's just say they did it and they responded to you, they adopted your ideas, not only would it be a better experience for the tourists, but what do you think it would actually mean for your bottom line? Anything? Oh, I think it would be, be incredible. Well, you know, find a business in Newfoundland that can operate three days a week. So, uh, you know, we, we turned down a lot of tourist opportunities uh, to take tourists out and, and fish, uh, you know, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I got to tell them I'm sorry. Uh, you can't retain one fish. You can't take one back to your trailer. You can't take one back anywhere. I don't want my boat seized and, uh, and impounded and uh, find myself in court. And that's the situation it is right now for us. And it's totally unfair totally discriminatory and it's about time that dfo and the federal government and our mps um, got this sorted out appreciate the call graham it's killing us, it's killing us. right thank you very much my pleasure take care and good luck bye-bye it's graham wood he's the owner operator of muscle bed tours all right, uh, Howard, you stay right there. He wants to talk about the recovery effort that's ongoing for parts of the Titan Submersible. They're actually offloading some pieces right here in the city of St. John's or the port of St. John's right now. And then we're going to talk about road conditions out in Central. And Anne-Marie has a topic about the nuns. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Howard. You're on the air. Good morning, Howard. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Great, sir. How about you? I'm doing very good. I'm going through chemo treatments right now, but I'm doing okay. I'm glad to hear you're doing okay. Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. I just want to, um, I've been trying to do this now for quite a, quite a while, but uh, sometimes it's hard to get on your shoulder, but that's understandable. I want to send a bouquet out to the healthcare system. I know uh, it's, uh, it's not where we want it to be, but uh, I had an operation over the winter at St. Clair's Hospital, 
And I was treated with all kinds of respect. Uh, I have nothing, absolutely nothing negative to say about about the people who treated me. I was treated really good. So I just want to send a bouquet out to those people. Fair enough. I mean, the problem for many is getting in the system. When you're in there, we've got some top quality pros, no doubt. Oh, there's no doubt. Is getting in the system is the... Uh, once you get in there, you get treated with all kinds of respect. And uh, I'm, right now I'm... Uh, at the cancer clinic, uh, um, well, only yesterday I went in there and had a treatment, and I find those people there as well. They're uh, they treat you with all kinds of respect, and uh, they do what they can for you, you know. And, and that same clear as well. I was in there ten days, and uh, I have nothing whatsoever negative to say about those people. Terrific, and hopefully you'll be recovering full ASAP. I hope so. Yes, I only have one more treatment to go, so hopefully. Uh, uh, in another couple of weeks, I'll be free of the treatments, and I just got hope for the best afterwards. Here, here. And I just wanted to uh, uh, send my condolences to the families of those people, those five men that were lost on the Titan submarine. I've had a, a this is back 50 years ago now, when that the uh, rescue was done off the coast of Ireland. I was a member of that ship that rescued those people. It's a remarkable uh, story. So this is the Pisces 3, right? Pardon? The Pisces 3. The Pisces 3, that's correct, yes. Okay. I read the story. It's fascinating. The rescue of Roger Mallinson and Roger Chapman. That's correct. You know, Roger Chapman apparently has passed away since. I saw the interview with this, Madison, I think his name was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I met those two guys actually afterwards in in Cork in in Ireland. Uh, because we were the people uh, on the ship that, well, I was on the ship that rescued those guys. They only had, I think it was 12 and a half minutes of air left. And uh, <clears throat> we had the guys that came over from uh, American Navy guys, I think it was six away. I mean, 50 years ago, it's hard to remember everything. I can't remember what happened yesterday sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, those guys came over. We were stationed in... Um, in Swansea in Wales at the time, we I was that ship uh, laid under sea uh, telephone cables and we repaired them as well, right? So we uh, we got a call to go to Cork and pick up uh, those guys that flew in from San Diego. They came in with the equipment, uh, two or three trailers with them that was planned was put on the ship and uh, and they had this machine when it was called the Curve Three at the time. Right? It was an ROV. Mm-hmm. And this thing was amazing. I can well imagine. It's mind-boggling to think of what they have today, what they're using out there on the, on the, with this with this Titan thing. It's uh, it was unbelievable at that time what they what equipment they had then. So I can well imagine it's it's, it's quite something right now, right? But they sent that thing down. They, it was uh, to rescue the sub. They didn't have very long left. So it, within an hour. They had them hooked, and we were pulling them back up again, right? Yeah, and I guess at intervals where he'd reach a certain depth and you'd have to reattach heavier rope to complete the uh, the rescue effort. I, I read the story after you and I spoke. Someone sent me the link, and I read it all the way through, and it's uh, absolutely brilliant stuff. Yeah, we had on that ship I was on, because it was a cable ship, the rope was very heavy. It was wire, wire rope, really, right? So we uh, they, they took that down with them, and they had a hook. It's amazing what one of those guys did. He went on board the mothership by helicopter and looked at a, a sub that was exactly like the one that was on the bottom. 
and he came back and he welded up a hook himself on board the ship that I was on. And it, uh, when they went down, they just the hatch cover on that sub was after coming off for some reason, hooked into a rope somewhere on the surface, and she sank. So they went down, and this hook, the, the two arms on the yes on the uh, ROV, there was almost had the same movements of a human arm. So when they put the hook into the hatch cover, it opened up, so it couldn't come out, and they just pushed a button in one of the command trailers on deck, and, uh, and the uh, arm actually dislocated from the, from the little anchor that they put in the, in the hatch cover. And this machine came back up again. The ROV came back up to service, and we pulled the sub up to the, the bow of the ship. Very cool. Have you possibly, or have you read the book that Chapman produced in 1975 called No, no Time on Our Side? No, I did not. No, I didn't see that book. I never. I actually never heard of it until you just mentioned it. Yeah, he did publish that back in the mid-70s. And there was also, in, uh, in the clip or the uh, article that I read, is that there's also been the story purchased by Mark Gordon Pictures to make a, a movie out of it called The Dive. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. So when I saw that clip, you know, uh, on, it was, uh, I was on Global News where I saw it, and I just saw the clip. And then he went to a break, and I said to my wife, my God, that looks like, uh, looks very familiar to me, right? So then it came back on again, and sure enough, right? You know, it was, it was a very jubilant moment when, when those two guys came to the service. They never had, they only had 12 and a half minutes of air left, from what I can understand, right? Well, they were in, they were trapped in it for almost 85 hours. They were, yeah, they were, for sure, yeah. The only, only thing with those two guys, they, they always had contact with them. Because they were they were they were in contact with them at all, at all times on the bottom because they they uh, that actual sub was only down to fifteen hundred feet. Right? Yeah, that's right. So we we actually made it to the Guinness Book of Records because it was the deepest rescue was ever ever done and still is. Because this rescue wasn't a rescue here; it was a you know it's a it's a recovery now, right? That's about the size of it. It's really kind of eerie looking at the pictures of them offloading the parts that they have recovered from the seafloor right here in St. John's today. I'm trying not to pay too much attention to it while I do my job, but it is catching my, uh, out of the corner of my eye, I'm seeing them float by. I appreciate you making yes. time for the show. Howard, anything else you want to say? No, no, that's good. No, I just wanted to, like, pass the bouquet along to the healthcare system and uh, just let you know that I was involved in that rescue and it was... Uh, it was something else back then, so it's a, it's amazing and mind-boggling, I'm sure, what equipment they have in our region. I can only imagine the ROVs of today. You know, there's a big company oh here God. called Kraken that does ROV work for different companies all over the world. Maybe we should get uh, his name just jumped out of my mind, but I know the guy who owns the company. I appreciate this, Howard. Wish you well, sir, with your health. Do you know uh, where I can, uh, if you want to ask I, any idea where I could locate that book if I wanted to? I, mean, I don't know, but I'll have a quick Google. Uh, no time on our side book. Uh, on Amazon. It looks like there's a, some of them right there available on Amazon.com. So it's called No Time to... No Time have, on Our Side. No Time on Our Side. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll have to look that up. There you go. I'd like to get that book and read it. So, well, thanks very much, Patty, for your for having me on. Uh, anyway, all the best, and we'll talk to you later. Sounds good, Howard. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the ongoing 
issues surrounding registered nurses with the president of the Registered Nurses Union, Yvette Coffey, and then Anne-Marie still there. Appreciate all the patience of those in the queue. Do not go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Todd, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Okay, you? Not bad, buddy. Good. I was just wondering, was the submarine uh, Titan equipped with, say, like a, a black box that a, a plane would have? It's a good question. I read a story from the BBC, and they were uh, interviewing a guy named Ryan Ramsey. He was a former submarine, uh, submarine captain in the Britain's Royal Navy, and the quote was from him, uh, just not verbatim because I don't have it in front of me, but there was no black box. So that then they go on to talk about was there an early warning system to monitor uh, sensors that monitor the integrity of the hull or what have you, but he said there's no black box. That's the best I know. Because these black boxes are pretty much indestructible, right? Yes, they are. Well, they, they survive airplane crashes, but the, the investigation now will be very much like uh, investigating an airplane crash, but this guy, Ramsey, said there is no black box. How he knows that, I'm not sure. So they'll never be able to find out the depth that imploded. Probably not, nor do I know if we'll have any real firm understanding of when it imploded. So I, I'm, I was surprised to see the size of some of the pieces that are being offloaded this morning. But I, like, I was led to believe that the implosion would have disintegrated everything. So when they were talking about recovering pieces, I was thinking to myself, recovering what? If it disintegrated, how are you going to find anything? But some of the pieces look pretty substantial. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't see any. Um, well, one more question. Uh, when that left the harbour, uh, uh, it's a seafaring uh, piece of equipment. Does it have to meet any standards from the new flag uh, from the Canadian government? No, apparently not. So there's only 10 submersibles in the world that can go to that depth. The only one that has not been tested rigorously at that depth and has been accredited by any any body at all, this one. It was the only one out of 10. The industry wrote letters to that company, OceanGate, repeatedly saying, it's hurting all of us, and your lack of attention to safety is going to be whatever, however they characterize it. So, no, the provincial government says they have no responsibility. The federal government says they have no responsibility. The Americans have said the, said the same thing, but something should change there because we just can't be taking a chance with that kind of stuff. Well, look at the millions of dollars it takes to go out and find this uh, wreckage. 100%. Yeah, yeah, it makes some sense. Makes no sense that you can just leave the harbor with something that's not going to come back. Well, uh, to extend that conversation, one step is I'm surprised that anyone would be willing to get in it if it didn't have some sort of rigorous testing and accreditation and approval. Because, I mean, going to that depth, we know it's risky to say the very least. So I'm a little bit surprised. And I think that's going to be part of the investigation is some of the material that OceanGate was using, the industry says, was purposefully misleading. So if that's the case, we're going to see whether or not there's recommendations of civil or criminal action on the heels of this. But I can't believe anyone ever got in it. And rest of their souls. What's the age of this uh, sub? Not 100% sure. It's been down several times. I don't know when it was uh, built in full, but it has gone to that depth repeatedly. But that was the problem. So says one of their safety guys who they fired back in 2018. He said the constant pressure cycles that it's gone under is going to lead to the stress of the carbon. and Consequently, there's going to be this type of accident. He warned them, and they fired him. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of questions to be answered, and uh, I'd say it'll be a long time before that uh, 
that record's gonna dive again. Yeah, and if it ever, if they ever even figure out any more than they currently know or think they know, big question mark there as well, Todd. Uh, appreciate the time. Anything else this morning? No, sir. Thank you very much. Anytime. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Okay, let's see here. New campaign launched by the Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador today to talk about the urgent need for change. Join us on line number four is the president of the union. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Walk us through the campaign. What is it? So this campaign is about reinforcing the importance of retention of registered nurses and nurse practitioners, and that there's issues that need to be addressed to ensure we stabilize our healthcare system and stop losing registered nurses and nurse practitioners out of our system altogether. What specifically are you highlighting? So uh, workload, uh, work-life balance issues, safe staffing, the use of agency nurses, um, violence in the workplace, as well as compensation issues, because we are the lowest paid in this country. I will say we are currently at the bargaining table, um, and we are negotiating and hoping to come to an agreement soon. However, that will only be a first step, a great first step to recognizing and valuing uh, registered nurses and nurse practitioners. But with 750 vacancies, we're not going to fill those overnight, and it is going to take some time for workplace conditions to improve um, because everything that we've done so far, we had 752 vacancies in October. We still got 746 in April. So... Obviously, remuneration or compensation is a big one for everybody, regardless of where you work or how you work. But how big a role will that play in retention? Because if it's a work-life balance issue or standing shoulder to shoulder with a travel agency nurse, compensation can only chip away at those so much. Exactly. Everything needs to be addressed. But we do need to be competitive. I mean, we are in a global nursing shortage right now. And Nova Scotia is currently at the table we are uh, at the table, um, you know, we're competing. We're not just competing uh, with uh, the Atlantic provinces or Canadian. We're competing with these private agencies now because people are seeing they can get their flexibility, their work-life balance, and they're getting paid two to three times the amount that our members are getting paid for so the same work. Just give us an idea. So I'm a 10-year veteran as a registered nurse, trained here, working in the health sciences. And I'm working alongside someone who is a travel agency nurse. We've seen some numbers from the government about how much it's costing. The minister says it's a necessary evil. His words, not mine. So give us exactly what the difference would be. So you're the travel agency nurse. I'm the RN trained here working on the floor. How much do I make? How much do you make? These travel agency nurses, from what we're hearing, we're not privy to any contracts, are making approximately $100 an hour. It's good work if you can get it. Uh, right. I know that flexible scheduling. Yeah, I know that you're at the table, so I'm probably going to have a hard time getting a lot of info from you. But with the legislation that was amended to expand the scope of practice for RNs to, you know, refer to specialists to uh, write uh, pharmaceutical write prescriptions, pardon me, order diagnostic testing. It also came with some questions about how long it was going to take, whether that nurse would be pulled off the floor to go undergo those training in the, in the three modules, and whether or not you get paid anymore. Any status update on that front? Uh, no, I haven't had any status update on that. I do know that there's three modules, online learning, uh, that you do yourself. Um, you have to be supported by your employer, and both the employer and the registered nurse go to the college with uh, a plan in place. 
um, for supporting the registered nurse to do this course and to be able to prescribe within their work area only. Yeah, there's a lot to it. I mean, everyone wants to do exactly what they're trained to do, but of course they want to get paid for it as well. Yeah. Well, anytime you increase scope, that's one of the things. Oh, so you want us to do more, but you're not giving us anything for it, mm-hmm. right? So that's human nature. I, I agree. I mean, if they expand my workload, I wouldn't mind having uh, a bit more pay for it. Uh, anything else you want to discuss this morning, Yvette? I just, you know, our campaign, uh, Don't Leave Nurses Hung Out to Dry, um, it equates to don't leave our healthcare system hung out to dry either. Right now, Arians and MPs, they feel like they're left out to dry. And they have been for some time. And it's not just COVID. COVID has exacerbated all the symptoms and it's become more real. Uh, We've lost more nurses out of the system. But we're using every opportunity and this opportunity with this campaign to build support for nurses, to keep the pressure on the government to continue making positive change like they have been in the past couple of years with recruitment efforts. And to encourage our members to hang on. We're working on this. We're having very serious discussions. We're still continuing to work with the department um, on retention and recruitment issues. And we will continue long after this collective agreement gets uh, negotiated, ratified and signed. Are any casual nurses taking the government up on the incentives to join the permanent full-time ranks? Uh, Not a lot of uptake. From what we've heard, I just recently got the evaluation on our nursing think tank uh, things from last year. There wasn't a whole lot of uptake. And as you can see by the vacancies, they haven't changed. Do you have a timeline in mind for cluing up collective bargaining before there's next steps and maybe some uh, labor disruption? Uh, Well, we are aiming for a collective agreement by the end of this week. If we have to go into the weekend and next week, we will continue on. But we are anticipating negotiating a collective agreement um, that shows registered nurses and nurse practitioners that they're valued and respected. What happens if you can't get there? Well, if we can't get there, there's the other process, and that's where you walk away, you get a strike vote, and you talk about job action. But we're not there. We're nowhere near there. We are more positive that we will have a collective agreement um, by the end of this month or early next week, and uh, we're not even prepping for that at this point in time. And just so we understand, and I'm not suggesting that here we go, there's going to be job action, but are registered nurses able to walk off the job in full and create a picket line and no nurses in the hospital, for instance? No. First thing has to be done is we have to negotiate what we call essential services agreements. Right. So... We would never walk out, never walk out and leave our patients. I appreciate that. We're advocating for our patients. And would there be cancellations of non-urgent surgeries and procedures and outpatient clinics and that? Absolutely, if there was job action, as there was. I mean, last time we had job action was in 1999. Um, It was very clear back in 2008, 2009, they couldn't sustain a strike. We don't have core numbers even fill our core positions that's why they're relying on agencies and overtime and mandatory overtime we don't even have core staff for essential services with just our members so is the the last job action 99 is that where i still see a couple of those license plates around calling out brian tobin uh yes it is okay exactly yeah i appreciate the time and the update this morning 
All right. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Yvette Coffey. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union, Newfoundland and Labrador. Anne-Marie, you are next to talk about the nuns. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Anne-Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. I've got to say, i got to send out a bouquet of flowers to you and all your staff, to Dave and Tom and Tim, and you do a wonderful job. You're there for the people. You have intelligence. You know everything. What you don't know, you research, and you provide help to the downtrodden, to people have everything, and people have nothing. You're a fear, fear, prayer, fear person. I appreciate it, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Yeah. Now, what i got to talk about is not nice. i got to talk about the nuns, and the reason why I want to talk about the nuns is I was educated by the nuns, and way back in the day, my brothers were educated by the brothers and the priests, and some of them ended up in Mount Cashel, some of the different boys, and the girls were in school, and we had a lot of corporal punishment at the time, corporal punishment by use of a ruler that you had to kneel on for an hour because you might have said a word out loud or something, and the ruler had a little plastic holder where you you used to put your pencil. So when you knelt on that, you had a dent in your knees. Another corporal punishment was they put you in a corner that was a baby seat with a rattle. And if you misbehaved, you sat in the corner in grade four and you shook the rattle and you said, goo goo gaga. Now that's corporal punishment. We lived it. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 54. We went to school with the Christian brothers and some of them were, I'll just say, really mean. Yeah, well, the Christian brothers threw erasers at my brothers. Like when they asked a question, they picked, they called it, picked them off from the from the desk, from up in the front, down in the back, and threw history books at them. Some of the stories are absolutely unbelievable, and I would suggest the vast majority of them are absolutely true. And if you went home and told your mother, she would say, "Well, you must have been bad because no one would hurt you if you weren't bad." So then you got punished again. Yeah, it wasn't uh, uncommon to be sent down to the office, and the reprimands, you know, they were varied. You might get a detention, you might get a, a talking to, or you might get that dreaded razor strap, which is also a very real, I can confirm that. Yes, and the nuns went around with that strapped to their, their skirts, and it was went down the full length of the skirt, and they would strap you, and they'd say, you're going to get five straps, and if you got afraid, my sister was younger, and she got afraid and cried and moved her hand away, and she got five more because she did that. That was the rule. Yeah, they were the rules, but that to me is not, that's corporal punishment. That's abuse. I'm not going to argue that point at all, and plus, on top of that, it just doesn't work. You know, no. it's like a bit of love and kindness and a hug, that does a world of good. This physical abuse is not, it wasn't in the day, it's not in this day, and it's not meant for tomorrow. Yeah, corporate punishment, it's for good reason that it's not in schools. Now, the pendulum has swung a long way the other way, where there's very few tools available to teachers and principals and vice principals to settle down the nuisance, uh, nuisance children, of which there are obviously some still in the school. So I don't think the answer is corporate punishment, because I'm here to tell you it doesn't work. But no. there's got to be still some opportunity for teachers to be able to deal with the, the troubled or the problem students, because right now, can't do anything, right? And it's not about can't yeah. talk because of course you shouldn't be hitting the kids but there's very little you can do and like you said if you went home and told mom or dad that you got the strap or you got a knock that day then it was your fault because you did something wrong now right. it's more much more likely if someone calls home is how dare you say that my child is not an angel but your child might not be an angel 
And I mean, some of these PD days, maybe they could incorporate some tactics on how to deal with children that are growing up in drug abuse homes, children that are growing up with no food in their bellies when they go to school, children that are going up to separate, you know, to broken homes, children that are living on the street and trying to go to school. You know, like today's society, everyone is not privileged. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of downtrodden. There's a lot of homeless people out there. Oh, don't I know it. Yep. So, you know, like there's ways to help it. And they have, you know, they'll close the school and have a PD day. Well, why don't they have an hour on that PD day and how to bring Johnny into the, the fold so that he's accepting of what you're telling them to do instead of being belligerent about it and acting out about it. Yeah, it's not easy. I'm glad I don't have that type of job, uh, but my wife does. Uh, Anne-Marie, I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else before we take another call? No, just that when they, when they look after Whitburn and they look after Pleasantville, they should look after the rest of the girls because the women were the downtrodden. We only got the, the right to vote in 1929, was it? And, and now we're still the downtrodden. I appreciate this. Thanks for the call. Stay in touch. Okay, take care. You too, Anne-Marie. Bye-bye. All right, for the news, let's go to one. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. Thank you for taking my call, Patty. I really appreciate it for you and David and VOCM. Uh, calling with a big concern of mine and the public, because they've been bringing it to my attention, of the terrible road conditions, Patty. I just came back from Fogo Island. I'm here in Lewisburg right now. Just came from Fogo Island, and uh, the road conditions is, is treacherous. And I, I just almost experienced an accident between Stoneville and the main highway. Uh, Your dodging potholes, Patty, is unbelievable. I just traveled four different countries, and I'm not bragging. I never see such a state as that in the four countries I just traveled. It's just unbelievable, and uh, it's a big concern for me because just a few years ago, I lost a friend that struck a pothole and ended up getting killed. And, and Patty, uh, there's no need of it. I, I'm challenging the minister, Minister Lovelace. Can you please bring it to the supervisor's attention in the depots about the importance of filling these potholes? It's the end of June. Snow has been gone for a couple of three months, a couple of months. Uh, so why aren't these potholes filled? You still got a crew at the depots. I know that. Actually, my my brother was a supervisor there that retired. Is retired now. Uh, you still got uh, public works in the towns, uh, say the town of Fogo Island. And yesterday I got a complaint that uh, actually a, a, a tourist bottomed out in the, in the town of Fogo, in Fogo itself, in a pothole. So that's all negativity. And not only is it negativity, it's, it's dangerous. And people, you know, imagine on a motorcycle dodging these potholes, and that's, you know, or on the low profile tires or whatever, you know, and. Anyway, Patty, it's treacherous. I, I, I do believe his neglect, I'll put the wording, neglect on behalf of the minister and his supervisors out there because he should be saying to the supervisors that this got to get done. It's a priority and it got to get done. Yeah, and it's your roads there, it's my roads here, it's the listeners' roads everywhere. It really is quite something. It's Government is quite pleased with themselves about this uh, unprecedented spending on road work this summer. Fair enough. But, again, that doesn't really address the issue with just how much... I wasn't going to say quality, but how long we get for the roads to last before they start to pock up and rot and to create these massive potholes. Even where I live, I mean, some of the main thoroughfares in the city, I'm sure it looks like a patchwork quilt from space. 
because yep. it's, it's just atrocious. Hopefully, Eugene, the folks at the depot heard your comments this morning. Well, Patty, the staff is there. So get out and do it. I mean, it, it's a matter of life or death if you ate one of those potholes and you end up in the ditch like my friend did and got killed. I mean, but anyway, Patty, I challenge the minister. He's the one that should be on this. Maybe he can come on and, and, and tell us what's going on, the reason why these potholes are not filled, because we would like to know. The public would like to know, Patty, and it's a matter of life or death. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Have a good one, Patty. Thank you. Too. you. All the best, Eugene. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, uh, Holly's there to talk about the cleanup efforts that are continuing on the southwest coast after post-tropical storm Fiona. Dave's there to talk about the Alex and the Hook trade. Love that. And then we're going to talk housing up in Labrador. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Dave, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, thank you. How about you? Oh, good, good. I just wanted to have a little discussion about the Alex Nohook trade. I think it's a great trade for Alex Nohook because I think he was seemed like he was slipping down the line a bit on with Colorado, like you know. He averaged about 11 minutes of ice time a night. Uh, he's not yeah. really built as a fourth liner. He did have a chance early in the season to take on the, the second line center. And yeah. a, bit of, a bit of a struggle. And, you know, they picked up with this guy, Ryan Johansson, made it look like they were going to probably deal Alex. But I'm just yeah. thrilled that it's to my favorite team. And I, that's just a selfish uh, yeah. bias. Yeah, I, 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 got, I heard some rumors that you're a Montreal Canadian fan, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, they have a great coach in uh, Martin St. Louis, uh, and I think uh, uh, I compare uh, Martin St. Louis' game something like uh, Alex Nohook, because I remember seeing uh, Martin St. Louis at the old stadium when he played with the Frederick and Canadians. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that's a, a few years ago now. But uh, I think they're both the same type of player. You know, they're, they're gritty players. They, they play a good, you know, the, they're not, uh, don't spend too much time in the penalty box, but they're not afraid to go into the corners. And I, I, I think uh, the same type of uh, game. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, Martin St. Louis is a pretty good comparison. If Alex can ever turn out to be a Martin St. Louis, I think yeah, he'd be no, pretty pleased. Right. Yeah. Well, even if he gets half to half to, to he's, uh, you know, uh, play uh, as good as uh, St. Louis, he'll be all right, you know. I'd say he's a Hall of his Hall, Martin yeah. St. Louis is in the Hall of Fame, isn't he? What's that? Is St. Louis in the Hall of Fame? I think so. Uh, uh, yeah, I think he may be. I, I'm not too sure on that now. Well. But, uh, he, uh, I, I liked his game when he, when he was here, you know, uh, that was the good old times at the old Memorial Stadium when the, when we had the Leafs there. You know, it's not the same now with the East Coast League. You know, the, the caliber has gone down and that. And, and I don't think the East Coast League they have here now. I don't think that uh, I don't think that even matches up with the old the old Senior League when we had all these uh, you know lads the imports, of course, and the local players like Billy Martin and all those guys and playing Ernie Hines. You know, uh, but. Uh, I, I think everything is going to turn all right, all, out all right for Alex Nohook, and 
I certainly wish him and uh, Dawson Mercer the best of luck when the season. You realise there's only another couple of months, I guess, and they'll be on the, have the skates laced up. They'll be going to training camp again. So I can't wait for the hockey season to start. Tell you the truth. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think well, Alex will definitely get a better opportunity to play <laughs> on a different type of line with Montreal. Yeah. They got a good young core. Saint Louis yeah. kind of just lets them play. So yeah. I think it's hopefully it's a nice matchup. Uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to speak with Alex. Maybe he'll be interested in coming on the show. Hope they get yes. a contract signed soon. But add <coughs> Dawson Mercer. Hopefully Zach Dean gets a chance with St. Louis. Clark Bishop's re-signed with uh, Calgary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so right. let's see how the boys do. Yeah, I, I, I saw this morning now that uh, in Ottawa, I always uh, I like Ottawa team too. They have sort of a same type of team that Montreal is trying to build, I think. And uh, of course, I, I I'm partial to DJ Smith. I, I like him because I remember him when he played with the St. John's Maple Leafs, and he was a good defense from there. And I think he's turned out to be a great coach. I don't know what your opinion is on DJ Smith, but I, I think he's a good coach for Ottawa, the young team, like you know. Yeah, he's got a very short leash. I would suggest between him and. Yeah. Sheldon Keefe, those two guys, if they don't have their teams yeah. performed pretty quick, they're both gone. Yeah, I noticed on the sports set this morning now that DJ Smith and all these staff are back for this year now, but like I say, it's a long year, so <laughs> you don't know if, they're, if they last or not, you know. It all, uh, you know, like I said, uh, said to one, fr- one of friends of mine, I said, you, if the team goes bad, you can't fire 25 players, so I guess the coach is the number one to go, right? <laughs> it's easier to change coaches than it is to change players. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, Patty, you have a good day and keep up the good work. Appreciate the call, Dave. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye now. All right. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Perfect. All right. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of Channel Port of Bass. That's Brian Button. Mayor Button, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Patty. I uh, just uh, wanted to call in this evening, or this morning, rather. Uh, had a chance to hear part of your show last evening, uh, catch the replay there, and uh, heard one of your callers that had called in, a good guy there, Murray, who had called in, and heard him talking uh, to you about uh, down in his situation in the community that he's in, and I noticed he made reference to myself and, and uh, Minister Parsons, Andrew Parsons and stuff, but not calling to speak on behalf of Minister Parsons, of course. He can call in your show and he can uh, certainly have a chat or whatever. But for me, I know uh, Murray on that call, he had said, you know, that, uh, you know, the only concerns that uh, Brian Button is having is for the town of Port of Basque. And uh, I just want to verify that, which that would be true. As mayor of Port of Basque, it's, it's my role to advocate on behalf of the people of Port of Basque. The unfortunate part for uh, for Murray is that for him, you know, he's he's not in the community that I represent, so you know I can't speak for you know things that are going on in his community and you know his community and I, you know, we we work together and stuff on, and we've been you know in communication since uh, Fiona have happened and so on and so forth. But you know they have a municipal council, they have a mayor, and the mayor of Port of Bass can't walk into his community and deal with the situations that they're having there. I think. One of the major concerns Murray is voicing is that your community has the designation uh, I can't remember exactly what he called the designation, but it doesn't extend to uh, folks like in, out in Burnt Islands. So I wonder why that w- was the way it is, because if Burnt Islands was decimated by Fiona, then what difference does it make if it's, you know, Port of Basque or Burnt Islands or anywhere else that suffered the damage? So that was one of his major concerns. Yeah, and I, and I can't speak for what the council and what the, you know, what they're doing in the uh, town of Burnt Islands from those perspectives and their conversations that they're having with the provincial government with regards to 
to, you know, the issues that they may be having from, you know, the losses that they had in their community as well. But I know in our community, you know, it's been my job and the job of the council here to advocate on behalf of the residents here and, and what has taken place. And, I mean, we've worked on this file pretty extensively and, and have been working. You know, we had, you know, the probably the biggest impact of all of it with, you know, over 80-plus homes that were impacted as the total loss homes when we went through this. And we had a high volume of the uh, area of the community that was hit. From that time on, I mean, right from the early stages, you know, we identified uh, areas which we would have called high-impact zones. And then I guess over a period of time, you know, we've been working and provincial government officials have been working to look at, uh, you know, what what homes and things have been involved in here, and there's been quite a bit of work. It's been an extensive piece that, uh, from all aspects, right from a municipal side to the provincial side, that have been, you know, trying to develop that. I would assume probably other communities have been, you know, they have their pieces as well, and have been working with the provincial government, and, you know, those things could be ongoing. You know, there's been as this has been transpiring over the last 10 months, there's been, you know, various aspects of the Fiona response that has been coming from both the provincial government and what we've been dealing with. So, you know, these things could be happening uh, down there as well, and their communities could be identifying the spots where they see, and that's what we've identified. And then there was a, a large piece of work that was done from various departments within government that we were pushing to uh, uh, try to get that uh, that done and I would assume that you know those other things are being done as well in from uh, other communities and it just takes time it does so I mean was part of the conversation you know did it did it include a lot of conversation about where to rebuild because that was one of the things right away so, you know we're talking about if we can't get insurance coverage for storm surge there's going to be compensation dollars coming from whether it be monies that were donated or the provincial government or the federal government so how's the attention to where to rebuild gone well, you know, we're not going to be rebuilding, obviously, in the places where we've had, we've seen destruction or we see potential, you know, a risk that there could be problems uh, going into the future. I mean, our rebuilds are happening in our community in Port of Bass, which I speak for. I mean, they're happening in, happening in a brand new area in a subdivision where, you know, it's it's not in an area where it's sitting on the seashore or, or anything like that. It's a, you know, it's a part of our development, and it was the area which in our community where we were going to be doing future developments. It's where our new subdivisions have been being built over the last number of years, and now we're continuing on over there for any new builds. When it comes to the properties that have been affected, you know, there will not be uh, builds back in these properties when we start to go forward. So, you know, it's, it's you know, Patty, it's been uh, quite extensive with everything, and it's far from over. It's, I think what provincial government uh, officials have said is that you know the response is is not done uh, no one you know no one anticipated that you would have this done in 10 months let alone you know we, we could be into this for a couple of years time you get it all straightened away and and things get done so i would assume that 
in all communities that uh, this type of thing goes on. And I can speak, I guess, openly to say that, you know, I know that our municipalities here, you know, we've been involved. And when it comes to uh, Andrew Parsons and government officials, I've been on various calls where, you know, it's every community. And and I know they've been working for not just for the community of Port of Basque. And, you know, I put the government officials' numbers on speed dial where I'm calling them and uh, trying to advocate on behalf of my residents. And the MHAs and stuff, you know, there's lots of times when I can get the MHA say, you know, I'm dealing with the other issues in the other communities as well. So I know that they're working vigorously that way as well. So, you know, it's it's. You know, our councils are in our communities. We're all different municipalities, and I don't think that the community of Burn Islands or the community of uh, Isla Mort or any community that surrounds me would want the mayor of Port of Ass coming down and running their show. They have their elected bodies as well. So those things are ongoing, and the work is on, ongoing, and I, and I understand there are issues there, and I understand that they need to work with their municipal, their municipal officials, and hopefully that the results and the things that they need to do will be done as well. Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Button. I appreciate the time you give me. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So we go. It's Mayor Brian Button out in Channel Port of Basque. Last break of the morning. Uh, the NDP member for Lab West, Jordan Brown, wants to talk about housing, and hopefully we'll get to Holly to talk about burnt islands and Hurricane Fiona as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Yes, no, so as I said, we had just seen, you know, the announcement yesterday with, you know, $1.5 million from ACOA going to Wabush Mines or Decora for research in manganese uh, processing. That's great. But for the last four years, and I know I've called your show dozens of times on this topic about housing in Labrador West, we have yet to see any real investment into housing into this region, either by the federal government or the provincial government. We got $2 million to fix up 10 existing units. My wait list for Newfoundland Labrador housing in this region is still 27 applicants. 14 of them are single individuals who are currently couch sheriffing, living in people's basements, living in people's cabins. I got healthcare workers. I got a healthcare worker who's being evicted from her house because the landlord wants to sell the property because it's a hot housing market here. And her salary, she can't even afford the mortgage to buy the house she's renting. This is what we're coming to in Lab West, but yet we're going to keep adding to the industrial, uh, you know, here. So basically, for my, for my position is the provincial government, the federal government hasn't made any real investment in the municipalities here to increase housing stock. And I'm going to have more and more people flying in, flying out of here. They're turning my town into a camp, Patty. The, gov- the two governments are turning my town into a work camp. I think some. I, I think we hold a couple of levers here. If they want to do more and more in Labrador, whether it be with manganese or expanding critical minerals, what have you. I've said this before. Some people think I'm cracked. I'm going to stick with it, though. I think part of the benefits agreement is the company to pay attention to housing, all in an effort to not make it a fly-in, fly-out camp. Well, that's, that's one part of the situation. But those levers are not being pulled. And I have two municipalities here. They have great development plans, excellent development plans about building more housing, building more infrastructure, but they can't get a cent from the provincial government to even work on any of their plans for increased housing. And the federal government, so we, you know, not that long ago, I was talking to you about the seniors project, about seniors housing, 44 seniors unit. We've been rejected four times, four times from the federal government for housing for seniors in this region. Four times, Patty, to actually do something about housing here. And we have gotten not a single red cent from the federal government 
government to actually do anything about it. I'll actually give one little bit of credit. We got a bit of money to do a little bit of the, the work to actually put in the applications of the federal government from Newfoundland Labor Housing. But other than that, nothing. And the provincial government is sitting there going, well, we can't really give you all the money for the housing. Well, someone got to do something, Patty, because I have people literally living on the streets in Labrador West. This is the most prosperous community in the entire province, and I have homelessness here. And I have a housing market that is absolutely ridiculous. It'll put St. John's housing market to shame about how ridiculous the prices are around here for housing. I wonder if we had something like a more realistic approach to seniors' housing, whether it be personal care homes or assisted living, long-term care in your community. We'd see a lot of homes free up in a jiffy, which could indeed address homelessness. It could indeed address more workers in the expansion at the Cora Mines or the Scully Mines to actually live in your community. I think if you start there, you'd probably begin the solution. Well, that's what we've been doing, Patty, but we've been rejected four times now from the federal government, and the provincial government are sitting there on their hands going, well, you know, we got some money, but we're not going to give it all to you. So, you know, and we're, like, we're literally fighting over peanuts here, Patty. Like, literally, it's not, it's not like we're going to break the bank of the federal provincial government to actually invest in housing in this region, but I cannot get them to even like admit there's a problem here in Lab West. They won't even admit that there's a problem here. But like I said, I got I got 14 single individuals who've been on the housing list for years, living in people's garages, living in people's cabins, living in uh, in people's basements. You know, I got uh, you know uh, healthcare workers. Their salary doesn't even they can't even get a mortgage in Lab West because the housing prices around here are so ridiculous. That even there, and it's interesting, you had a vet on talking about this. Well, this is the problem we have up here when it comes to retention and recruiting of healthcare workers. There's nowhere for them to live. They can't afford. They can't afford a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage on a house that was built in 1962. It, it's absolutely ludicrous here. And then I have. A, I don't have enough teachers up here uh, to actually, uh, you know, to actually keep the schools open. And um, and same thing. They're, they're, the 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 school board and the Department of Education going. Well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, help me get some housing done up. Here. And you know what? They're all just sitting on their hands pretending like it's not a problem. They're hoping that the situation will go away. And, and, you, and one reaction I, I got from somebody, well, you know, maybe, maybe someone will move out. Maybe someone will retire and leave. That, that, that's what you're hoping for? Really? Patty, in 2016, the population of Labrador West was, was 9,000 and something. Uh, in the latest census, we, crack, we cracked 10,000. The population is growing year over year since 2014. The population of this region has grown, and it, it, and the continuing trend is growing. And I got both mines up here making big power plays in the in the green steel industry here. You know, and that's going to be growing our jobs. You know, I even still got you know I got uh, hydro needs, I got housing needs, I got healthcare needs, I got all this here, and I got everyone in government, both federal and provincial, just sitting on their hands and pretending like nothing's going on. And this is getting absolutely ridiculous now. So when you mention teachers, so. Is the thought that because of housing or lack thereof, the teachers don't want to move the, uh, to Labrador, or they simply don't want to be in Labrador? They can't afford to come to Labrador. Okay. They, I got people, in the, you go on the like housing support for, uh, uh, Facebook groups and stuff, you know, looking, you know, uh, Labrador renters and Labrador thing on those Facebooks. They got people on there, teach, new teachers, new, like they're, they, we applied to a job and we got a job offer in Lab West. Um, and then we got an apartment available. Vacancy is zero. There is not a single apartment anywhere in Labrador West to rent. And some of these people are just fresh out of university or, you know, fresh out of a master's degree or something like that. They don't got $500,000 or even the credit to get a $500,000 mortgage. And even some of the smaller houses are still going for 300000 Patty, I bought my house. It was built in 1969. I got it for $60,000 in 20, uh, 20, uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. My value now is $300,000, Patty. 
I didn't put much money into it. It's absolutely ludicrous. Like, if anyone tells me that my house is worth $300,000, I'll laugh at them because I, I know what it's worth. It was, it's, it's nothing. And this is what this town has gone to. It's gotten so out to lunch with the pricing and the uh, availability that it's, it's just not sustainable anymore. No one has the income in today's age to pay for these houses. And then you expect a teacher or anyone on a government salary to come up here and try to spend five hundred, three hundred, four thousand dollars on a house. They're not going to do it. They're going to look at it and go, well, you know what? I guess I'm going to stay on the island and work because even what the wages of the government paying, you can't, you can't live up here. It's, it's just become unsustainable. And like I said, once again, both the federal and provincial government are just sitting on their hands and hoping that the situation will go away. It's the other side of that double-edged sword. You know, economic prosperity does indeed come with uh, different pressure points, including housing and the price of housing. Uh, Jordan, you've had the last word. Actually, I'll give you one cent, uh, a couple of seconds to finish off your thoughts before I have to say goodbye. Well, absolutely. Patty, I was on their show and when I first got elected in 2019, and I'm on here now. I warned them. I warned the government. I warned everybody what was going to happen. And guess what? The, the chickens have come home to roost today. This is what's happening. Appreciate the time, Jordan. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. All right, good show. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.